Thanksgiving, everybody, from us at I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully. My name is Garrett Smith, here to wish you a bone tomahawk Thanksgiving, a bo- ladies a w- and gentlemen. A wishbone tomahawk yes. for Thanksgiving. Indeed. And uh, today we are going to be talking about uh, a movie that is sort of the, the return of one of our favorites, Paul Verhoeven. Yes. Famous have for Have we done a Robocop. Verhoeven movie yet? I don't believe we have. I, I would love to do have. Total Recall at some point in the future. Oh, that'd be cool. I that'd love be cool. Total Recall. So we are going to be talking about the uh, newest release, just came out in Philly this week, called L. Yes. And it's uh, Isabelle uh, Huppert, I believe is how it's Huppert. pronounced. Huppert. Uh, yeah, and uh, we've, got a, we've got a special guest with us whose name I know how to pronounce about as well as I know how to pronounce Huppert's. Uh, Dan Santinelli? Santelli. Santelli. I you don't got know all why. cocky there, Dude, and then you blew I it. I threw a whole <laughs> syllable in there that doesn't exist. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> Dan Santelli, uh, who, uh, I don't know, I know you uh, uh, of uh, Viva Video, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, where else might people know uh, Dan Santelli from? Uh, first and foremost, Bonehawk Tomahawk Gents. <laughs> Thank uh, you, sir. Thank you. Uh, well, people might know me. Uh, well, distinctly in this area, they'll know me from Viva Video. I've yes. been working at Viva Video Um for uh, well, I've, I worked full time between 2013, starting the end of 2013 through the end of 2015, and now I work primarily part time on weekends. Uh, people might also know me uh, around the repertory circuit here in Philadelphia. Yes. They'll see me at Exhum Films events consistently. Um, That's how we got hooked up with you for the most part, I think, just through our mutual uh, love of the Exhumed events. Indeed, we found each other through Letterboxd, I think, mostly Exhumed. And we also know a lot of people in like our, our extensive cinephile circuit. Like sure. I know you know Rob Scavarla and a lot of sure people do. at Philomoca. Like Rob's Eric. a previous guest, yeah. Indeed, yes, uh, I remember Eric you, as well. Yep. yep, I remember you guys talked about Silent Night, Deadly Night with we Rob. Sure did. Oh, yes. um, yeah. So people might know me from that. Uh, there's a chance some people might know me from Letterboxd. Uh, under I the, hope uh, so. Initials are, DS. Yes, you're mm-hmm. one of my favorite writers on Letterboxd, actually. Oh, which thank is you. Partially why we uh, brought you in for this episode in particular. Uh, Dan informed me that uh, uh, Dan Scully, our Dan, this is gonna be difficult. Me, that's yes. me. Uh, Scully informed me that the uh, L is. Potentially your favorite film of 2016? Probably as of now. I, I need to see a lot of stuff, but I'd say at this point it's, uh, yeah, this is it's L, and then after that, there's pro- it's probably The Witch right now. Yeah, oh, Nita- The yeah. Witch is high yeah. ranking mm-hmm. on my list. The, the Witch a, was a big one for for this year, I think. The mm-hmm. Witch is one of the few movies that I think, like I was hyped hard on that, mm-hmm. and the hype to delivery ratio was was so tight on that. Yeah, that, that was better than I even expected. I'm glad to hear that too because that was a movie that I think the marketing team kind of missed the boat and really marketing it as a shriek show. For sure. When a lot of it, you know, I mean, it, it is hor- horrifying, most yes. certainly, and it's got a lot of traditionally scary elements, but it also works kind of in the way of sort of a dare I say kind of like a Bergman movie. I mean, okay. it's got a sort of a lot of quiet, introspective moments, yes. um, a lot of issues regarding faith uh-huh. and you know i think people repression who, yeah so repre- that, mm-hmm. absolutely and sort of like um well the calvinist element may have gone over the heads of some people but it's uh there's definitely, definitely there. dutch reformation church um but uh 
but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad though it seems to have still found its audience, nonetheless, sure. uh, uh, particularly on home media and VOD. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, no. L though probably is uh, the best that I've seen this year. Although I've only seen about 48 releases this year, I need to catch up with a lot more though. I'm at like 57, so we're we're somewhere in the same ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I can it. as confidently talk about uh, L as you can on that list, but uh, that's why you're that's here. Why you're that's here. why you're here. You're you are one of my favorite writers on Letterbox. I think you oh, have you. a very um, the way Dan and I like to talk about movies seems to be somewhat different from the way you like to talk about movies, and that's one of the reasons I like to read your reviews. Uh, and I am fascinated to hear uh, what it is about L that works so well for you, because I don't even know where to start talking about this. Mm. Indeed. Well, before we do anything, yeah. we should say that... We're going to uh, spoil the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. We're going to spoil it. Um, I will go ahead and say that I, it's... I recommend it. Yes, I, I would definitely too. recommend it. I would too. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly enjoyed watching it. I just don't know even where to start uh, talking about it, let alone unpacking it. Because mm-hmm. it is the kind of movie where I'm definitely left wondering about its intentions altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, as is as you know, is the case with a lot of Verhoeven films. Y- yeah. I mean, y- y- the first question, well, not even just with L, but with any Verhoeven film, is what is his how does he feel about the subject matter that he is presenting? What are right. his intentions as an artist? And, you know, I mean, and also we should say, yeah, definitely folks, this is going to be one spoilerific episode. So uh, yes, please definitely go and see it. It's playing at the Ritz five. We're recording this on Sunday, the 27th. So yeah. please go see it. I hope it'll be here for more than a week. So it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's certainly, um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's when. How long has it been since Verhoeven made a movie? Has it been ten years now? Ten years, yeah. Well, he made this one movie called Tricked, which I still need to see. Which was a crowdfunding movie, um, which I, I've heard. I've heard some decent things about it, but I think it was like only sixty-seven minutes long, okay. and uh, was basically just kind of like. Uh, more an academic exercise in movie making than him making an actual movie is from what sure. I understand, but it's still got distribution the Kino DVDs out. But in terms of like a, of a highly anticipated Verhoeven movie, the last time he would have had a movie would have been 2006 when black book came out. Black so book. that yeah. was his last one. I didn't see that. Black book is excellent. It's no, good. That black book. I would highly recommend uh, in my head. That's <laughs> the movie that stars, uh, the guy from office space about his little black book of girlfriends or whatever the fuck. <laughs> Does anybody know what movie I'm talking I about? I think you're referring to little black book. Is that really what yeah, the movie's called? called? Little oh, black is that the book. Brittany Murphy movie? That is yeah. Brittany Murphy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brittany Murphy piece. and the dog. Yeah. <laughs> What's and that then, guy's name? Why can't I think of it? Uh, you're thinking of Ron Livingston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a, a running joke uh, back in the day when they re-aired uh, Band of Brothers, in uh-huh. which Ron Livingston makes a a lot of people make an appearance, oh, like Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon's in it. Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Fastbenders in it. Uh-huh, a bunch uh-huh. of people show up, and so we used to get stoned and watch the the re-release of Band of Brothers, uh-huh. and every new character that popped up since we knew Ron Livingston appeared, like, is that Ron Livingston? <laughs> is that Ron? Li-? So Ron Livingston burned into the brain. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there was actually a, a, a sort of hiatus before that, understandably after Hollow Man. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was two thousand. There was six years until Black Book. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, once he came to, I mean, actually, the funniest thing is from his early days, he had been consistently working, usually make a movie about every three or so years, because, yeah, I mean, 1971, I think, was Business is Business, uh-huh. which I still need to see. Never seen he it. He did Turkish Delight in 73, Katie Tipple, I believe, in 75 or 76, and he did got, you know, 
money to do Soldier 75. of Orange. 75, yeah. And then he did Soldier of Orange and I think 77 or 78, which is like 77. The, the big thing that really they sort of like, yeah. The, well, actually, Turkish Delight was like one of the most popular films in Europe at the time, but Soldier of Orange was the one that really seemed to get him a lot of critical praise. I've never and seen of course, it, but it's got Rutger Hauer, who I love. Oh, yeah. Well, Rutger Hauer is in a lot of that early stuff. Like he's in, uh, he's in Katie Tipple, he's in um, Turkish Delight. Huh. Um, yeah, I think. I can't remember. I don't think he's in business as business. Um, what was his first movie to break in America? Uh, like, did any in, of his in terms of like a, a movie that did well uh, for his in America? Probably Devered Man, The Fourth okay. Man. Although, uh, although I do know uh, Soldier of Orange was very well received over here. Did in have fact, some acclaim here. If I remember correctly, I I I heard this. I can't remember where I read this, but I think I heard it on the Film Comment podcast. The um, Spielberg, I believe, had seen Soldier of Orange and tried to get him to come over here to America to direct something because Soldier of Orange is uh, more of a not standard, but is is a, a war a, a war film sure. that you know. I would say any audience could go to see that just has some sort of uh, some of the ver- the perverse per- Verhoeven touches, including okay. a very horrific scene involving a hose that goes into an orifice where hoses should not go God, as a form of torture. Is there an orifice that a hose should go, conversely? Mm. In a non-surgical <laughs> way? Uh, I think the answer for that is different strokes for different folks. <laughs> fair um, enough, fair enough. But um, you're saying there's an enema in this movie. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Picking up. <laughs> but I think the thing that really got him the, a lot of the attention here in America was uh, the Fourth Man from '83, uh-huh. uh-huh. uh, which unfortunately did not star um, Rutger Hauer, but starred Harry on Crabbe, who is a very talented um, actor from Holland Land. Um, American audiences might know him as the bad doctor from The Fugitive. Oh, mm-hmm. got it. But yes. um, I only just recently saw The Fugitive. Very much enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and then and then of course he made. Uh, Dad's the Fugitive. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> no, it, no, F- F- Fugitive is solid. It, it's one of those movies where I absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it as a kid. Of course. And yeah. then I went back and watched, it and I was like, kind of overvalued it, but it's still solid for what it's, it is. It's of its time. It's yeah. it's a it it's a. It is a solid Hollywood entertainment, is what totally. I would say, first yeah. time. Watching uh, it was weird because at every turn I was like, when is Joe Pantoliano going to be the bad guy the whole time? <laughs> Even knowing that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Have, had, having seen U.S. Marshals yeah. prior to The Fugitive, I knew he was a good guy. I saw U.S. Marshals before seeing yeah. The Fugitive as well. But he never did it. That's that's a later Joe, Joey Pants yeah. development. Joey the, Pants. He's always the bad yes. guy. I've been the bad guy all along. <laughs> I think I'm with you guys. I think I saw U.S. Marshals in the theaters actually oh, before boy. I saw before I saw Fugitive. But but yeah, so, but yeah, the fourth gum. You know, of course, I'm sure we're going to be going on a lot of tangents on <laughs> I this think episode, folks. Yes. But yeah, the fourth man was the thing that was like his last true Dutch um, production, and, and then, then he started making movies in the states. Uh, well, he made a movie that I believe had American financing, but was shot primarily overseas, called Flesh and Blood, uh, okay. which is uh, a really terrific. Uh, I think Crusaders, uh, Crusaders era, um, sword and sor- uh, sword, not sword and sorcery, uh, swashbuckler type movie with sure. Rutger Hauer and Jennifer, Ooh, Jennifer Jason, Jason Lee. Lee, one mm-hmm. of my favorites, indeed. Uh, and also, uh, 
Oh, I can't remember what that guy's name is, but um, but no, Flesh and Blood. Is it very... Jack Thompson or Tom Berlinson? Tom Berlinson. Um, and of course that, that that movie also has the much underrated uh, actress whose name now I'm forgetting. Uh, what she was in Fat City and Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Uh, what is her name? Um, it is Susan Tyrell. Susan Tyrell. Thank just you. Just for the much listeners, for... I don't know these things. I've <laughs> just got IMDb open and yeah, a quick you. trigger finger. <laughs> Susan Tyrell, one of the great underrated character oh, actors baby. of the time. Yep, I love. Cry baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and if you see her performance in Flesh and Blood, you can definitely see why John Waters would definitely want to cast <laughs> her. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Flesh and Blood, as far as I understand it, was Verhoeven getting his feet wet in the American filmmaking. It was this guy, Brian James. Ah, that's yep. a face. That is a face. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, not baddie uh, from Blade Runner. What's his? Uh, what's his? Leon baby? Kowalski. Leon, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Leon. Um, but yeah, and then of course uh, came the big guns. Uh, he went into the sci-fi. Uh, I believe his that's reasons. what I know him as. Basically, is is his American sci-fi stuff. That uh, most people our age, when they grew up, and you know, if they knew Verhoeven, they yeah. would know him through his sci-fi films. Yeah. Uh, Eighty-seven, of course, came RoboCop, which totally. is one of, in my opinion, one of the great American movies. I really love that movie. <laughs> I only saw it for the first time maybe four or five years ago, and was just like floored. No, oh, it's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. and I mean, also th- that's a movie that you know it's it's the perfect kind of blockbuster. It works as a great entertainment. Mm-hmm. It works as great satire. Mm-hmm. It is a surprisingly empathetic movie, and I don't usually associate a. Uh, strong sense of empathy with Verhoeven. <laughs> I, th- I, I wouldn't call him a prankster, but he, I, I, wouldn't, he, I wouldn't describe him as like the guy who has like makes touching movies. But yeah. oddly enough, and maybe it was Weller, but you know, all you need is that one scene where RoboCop goes into his uh, old house and it has that sort of like flashback to yes. times of you know well memories from when he was Alex Murphy but of course he can't register these that these were once his I mean and actually that was the scene that got Verhoeven to actually make that movie because he really? yeah he originally got the script he basically dismissed it thinking it was just uh you know generic you know disreputable sci-fi robocop yeah <laughs> it was yeah. Ro- yeah but then of course he was able to uh figure out a way to incorporate religious iconography and christ <laughs> symbols into it and that was you do uh, care about robocop i mean the last line i'm gonna butcher it but we request to be called murphy my name's mm-hmm. murphy that's yeah. that's some real stuff no absolutely that, you feel that yeah no, absolutely um and of course the, the the movie also has uh the the great 80s stalwart Nancy Allen in it yes. as well as the partner the Allens those yeah. are my favorite mm-hmm. forever babes are, Nancy yeah. and Karen Allen those two you got to get on some blowout man I do I know I, yeah. I know yeah. <laughs> yeah. to be continued yeah, we, we, yeah. yes um, Dan and I have already talked about that as something we would certainly like to do for the podcast moving forward indeed and of course you know before we go on to the next one let's not forget Miguel Ferrer and, oh, yeah. and Robocop mm-hmm. um, of course after that was Total Recall yes. uh, which is <laughs> as a one darling of, of mine one of the great Schwarzenegger entertainments yes, I, mean, I agree it's yeah it's yeah, it's also it's it, the funniest thing is that when you see Verhoeven movies, you know, particularly as Hollywood films, it it reminds you of a time when a Hollywood film could actually have a personality to totally. it, and it mm-hmm. didn't have that sort of homogenous vibe that a lot it doesn't of them... feel like it was pumped out by a machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's so much response to, you know, just can we check off all the boxes? Can mm-hmm. we test this and then and then fix it to yeah. to suit a broader taste? Mm-hmm. And I know, I mean, I don't know a lot of people who don't like Total Recall, but I imagine when it first came out, a lot of people just were aberrant to it because it it has that personality. Mm-hmm. It's gruesome. It's very excessive. Yes, I mean, there's 
that scene on the escalator when Michael oh, yeah. Ironside and the cronies just blast the the, the just, guy that Schwarzenegger using his body that armor. Guy, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, it's in. The, the other great thing about that movie is you get to see a lot of Verhoeven smuggling a lot of, you know, I, you know, maybe not ideas, but just like little pranks into the movie. My favorite of which is I believe there is almost no product placement in that movie until you get to the red light district on Mars. And the red light district is just filled with product. <laughs> I never even thought about that. That's funny. I, I did not. I admittedly did not notice that myself. I had heard that on letterbox through uh, Laird Yemenez, who's uh, one of the former guy. Um, well, he, he was a former scarecrow video um, employee. And I believe he works now with Alamo draft house. Nice. Um, and I think he had noted that on his letterbox notes. And I went back and looked at it again. I was like, Yep, he's right, and that is, that is 100% Verhoeven. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, those th- those two uh, those two uh, well the second well RoboCop and Total Recall, of course, big hits. Uh, yep. Then of course he went on to make Basic Instinct, yep. which a lot of people love. It, not one of my favorite Verhovens, but it's got some you know some some it definitely has value to it. I mean, it has the iconic shot. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely! It has <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. That's oh. iconography if there ever was one. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, hey, I, I, you were lucky if you rented that from Blockbuster and the tracking didn't get all mixed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, well, the one thing that Basic Instinct really does have going for it and does make it interesting in terms of the Verhoeven uh, filmography, because a lot of people at the time that movie was made, it was you know known as. The movie that Joe Esterhaz got three or four million dollars for mm-hmm. because of his screenplay. He wrote that screenplay apparently in like 14, 15 days. He sold it as a first draft. <sighs> he wrote it off the fly, no sort of, you know, uh, outlines or anything. Yeah. I think he was just getting high on a smoking cig- oh, cigarettes the, the, the and listening the old Paul Schrader method yeah. Yeah. yeah listening to sympathy for the devil i believe this is a <laughs> choice uh tune and then just sold it and i will say though it it functions very interestingly as a verhoven film because it is almost a direct reworking of the fourth man his mm-hmm. last dutch huh. film um i think the fourth man is most certainly the better movie but uh, I'm it. I'm just in the minority though with Basic Instinct because I know I like a lot Basic of people Instinct. really dig I it. I feel like it's sort of a. Uh, it exists in the shadow of a De Palma film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's trying to go for that. The quote, like there was a while where De Palma was being touted as the master of the erotic thriller, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think this fit into that. You know, it fit into that vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think uh, I, Paul Paul Verhoeven. I definitely think is much more of a prankster than De Palma Absolutely. is, whereas De Palma's. I want to go. I mean, I don't associate. Well, people associate Sleaze with the Palma, but I think the Palma is much more of a seducer, mm. whereas uh, Verhoeven definitely wants to prod you a little yeah, more yeah. as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, de Palma is the kind of person who wants to just lull you in, so then he can get his shock effects out of you and catch you off guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with Verhoeven, I mean, it only takes two minutes in Basic Instinct, and you have you know an ice pick being stabbed in someone's oh, yeah. eye. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and of course, after that came uh, maybe really the most hotly, that, yeah. maybe the most hotly debated of all the Verhoeven films in his American times. Which talking, is... of course, of Hollow Man. No, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Hollow Man is hollow film, as yeah. Verhoeven himself says. Uh, uh, we are, of course, talking about none other than the Elizabeth Berkeley and Gina Gershon star Showgirls, mm. and of course, <laughs> phenomenal flick, co-starring Mr. Kyle MacLachlan, Kyle MacLachlan. Jeffrey Beaumont. I gotta Do get love on him. this. I gotta see it. 
shit. It's good. I, <laughs> I, I think that movie is best described. Actually, I will name two people I think really get to the heart of why that movie is really good and deserves to be gone. You know, people should go back and look at it. I'll admit, I didn't love Showgirls the first time. I kind of actually thought it was, even with all the boobs and everything, was kind of boring. And then <laughs> I got religion my senior year of college when I went back and visited, and I was like, this is really up to something. Uh, two notes about Showgirls. I love what Jacques Rivette said about it in Kaya de Cinema, in which it, he described it as a movie about peop, uh, trying to survive in a world populated by assholes. And I think that is... <laughs> I think that's what good... Spaceballs is about, too. Yeah. <laughs> to, no, absolutely. I think, I, think, I think we can make a whole list of movies about you know pe- trying to survive in a world of assholes. Yeah. Mm. But I also, if I can... You know, one of my favorite people on Letterboxd, Matt Lynch, who is uh, yes. one of the guys at Scarecrow Video, just absolutely brilliant guy. If you want to follow him on Twitter at his harm handle, um, Colonel Mortimer, uh, he said uh, that it is a great critique of the American dream machine. And I think that is, a you know, I think that is a great way to sort of start unpacking what that movie is doing. Mm-hmm. And it's also a It goes back to what we said about his brand of blockbuster. They're not really a, a product of that machine. I mean, they right. are and they aren't. You, ha- you have to be a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it has that personality to it. Yeah, he kind of uses the Hollywood blockbusters like a springboard for him mm-hmm. to sort of go off on his sort of obsessions and find ways to smuggle those into his movies. He seems to do this weird thing where he like he gives you what you want as an audience member, but he doesn't necessarily give it to you in the way you would want it or the way you thought you were going to want it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. like mm-hmm. uh, I think those three sci-fi movies all deliver on American blockbuster isms. you mm-hmm. know they, they have their big action scenes and their uh, their clear-cut like, heroes kind of we talked villains. about with arrival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But they always have, it, it always turns out that those big excessive American moments are a part of this sort of play that he's kind of doing with you as an audience member. Mm-hmm. There's always some other commentary underlying all those things mm-hmm. that maybe are clear to you when you get done with the movie, maybe not. It probably depends on what kind of viewer you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's always like something to those like Americanisms where he's like kind of subverting them, even though he's almost directly giving them to you. Like oh, he's yeah. doing both, you know? Well, he's going to give you the goods. I yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, when you watch a lot of his American movies, I mean, you, you know, whether you like them or not, you can't be bored by them because he is going to give you the goods. But yep. one of the good, one of the things that has really made a lot of his American films, particularly of the 90s and late 80s, held up so well is that if you go back and watch a lot of those like uh, tentpole blockbusters from the times, a lot of those movies more or less just congratulate you for keeping up with their safeness. With Verhoeven, <laughs> he he goes all out. I mean, he's... Mm-hmm. I mean completely balls out even if even robocop i mean we grew up in the time when robocop was like you know just like you know a movie that we all watched you know we crammed it into oh, our yeah. vhs tapes yeah, and yeah. we said oh this is i had cool. robocop action figures yeah 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 also that's well that's another thing at it time. was terminator to mm-hmm. us yeah. even though yeah. those are wildly different movies really when you, oh, you i know, believe they you... fought mm-hmm. in the world of comic books <laughs> did they robocop and terminator yeah <laughs> well they're also movies that explore the uh the idea of the fear of technology totally. in the 80s when times are changing i think uh I think RoboCop is, uh, whereas I think Terminator is a movie that is outright afraid of the development of technology, RoboCop is the idea that says, you know, is the movie which says it depends on how it is used Mm -hmm. uh, by the master Mm -hmm. and -hmm. and if you can control it. Right. Whereas, you know, I mean, you know, with RoboCop is kind of tough because, you know, they ultimately aren't able to control it because he does achieve a degree of sentience by the end when the fact that he even 
declares to be called. And then Murphy. it calls into the question, though. You know what is sentience? Is yeah, he yeah. is he human? Is that human element essential to what RoboCop is? Mm-hmm. And as as RoboCop two and three, uh, yeah, we want some humanity in our <laughs> in our RoboCop because those don't really work. Uh, no, no, I mean particularly, God and Fred Decker. What I love Fred you, Decker. Uh, yeah, I love him. He's well. I'll get to talking about Fred Decker a little later when we get into our <laughs> list. <laughs> totally, <laughs> I love it. But um, it's a good pick. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, after Showgirls, of course, came the one that. Uh, Everyone is probably like most people's favorite. Um, I need to go back and revisit Starship Troopers, I must confess. I saw I don't it need... as a 12-year-old probably the last time I saw it. Mm. I saw it last in full when I was about 16. I loved it as a kid. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, I revisited it and kind of thought it was just goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, def- I I know I had a sense of irony. I knew what the movie was doing, but maybe it was just me going through my snobbish phase and I just wasn't sure. willing to submit to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to hold back an opinion on it uh, yeah. bes- until I get to see it again, but I have a feeling I'm going to really dig it next time. I will say what I do like that Verhoeven does is you know, he takes the Heinlein novel which is very militaristic. Yes, very nationalism is sort of what that mm-hmm. book is about, borderline, as I understand indeed, it. Indeed, it's borderline racist in mm-hmm. terms of the way it approaches, you know, the bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, um, the the interesting thing is that he gives you the goods, but at the same time, you know, he be, by incorporating a lot of, uh, well, basically he went to Leni Riefenstahl with Triumph of the Will and, you know, injected a lot of Nazi paraphernalia into mm-hmm. it to, you know, you know say okay you're rooting for these you know bad guys but it's clear that you know you know because of all a lot of this nazi imagery i mean you got neil patrick harris walking around in an ss officer's yeah. coat oh, in that yeah. movie yeah i mean it's clear that he's saying that you know he's very suspicious of yes. the militaristic i remember when i rented that. that movie my mom saw that and she was like is that doogie hauser he really grew up to be so ugly <laughs> and it's funny because now like we all know neil patrick harris he's he's a legitimate celebrity yeah, a legitimate yeah. star a <laughs> social force yeah and uh, it's just funny that she was like, hmm, that little boy grew up to be so <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mom, he's not interested in you anyway, so uh, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, but I mean, I will say the Starship Troopers, it's great most certainly when you're like, you know, 10, 11, yeah. oh, 12 years old. It yeah. delivered everything I wanted when I was 12 because there was bugs exploding and boobies. Yeah. Well, and, and Denise think, Richards. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. I think when you don't, uh, when you're too young to be aware of what satire he might be playing, uh, it does get to be that like American blockbuster mm-hmm. that it's purporting. Well, to it's be. like you're saying he does deliver that stuff. Yeah. And actually you can see it in the, you know, where we go from the original to the sequels with yes. both Starship Troopers and Robocop. Mm-hmm. Cause they both are very strong satires, but what we took and ran with, uh, in the case of Starship Troopers was people versus bugs, zap, zap, pow, pow. You know, the third one was the Casper Van Dien is back, <laughs> yeah, as if right. that had any sort of weight. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the star of Tarzan, Legend of the Lost City, is back, <laughs> oh, or whatever it is. Man. But then, same thing with with RoboCop. We got rid of the the story about yeah. you know finding the heart in the computer, and just was like, let's put him up against a bigger robot. Yeah, let's make him. The third one was let's make him fly. <laughs> you know, like, and that was that's all we went with. It's kind of like what Pauline Kael called the erector set approach to filmmaking. She wrote this famous essay called Trash Art in the Movies back in the late sixties. Um, oh, just in case people may not be aware, Pauline Kael, famous film critic, she ra- wrote for The New Yorker from 1967 to 1991. Uh, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, even if you think she's batshit insane, don't agree with her judgments, she, she is just a 
a fabulous writer, and very few critics wrote about uh, acting as finely as she did. Mm. But she once talked about this idea, the director said approach to filmmaking in the context of 2001, which was a movie she very much disapproved of. And uh, she basically said, you know, uh, it's... I'm going to butcher the quote, but she said, you know, it's as if Kubrick granted him power, granted himself the power to basically do any dumb thing he wanted to do. And the director said approach to filmmaking is the idea where why have, you know, well, you know, why have one alien when you could have a thousand aliens or Mm. why build a small miniature of a spaceship when you could actually build a life size set as mm-hmm. a spaceship and mm-hmm. stuff like that and you know that's that's ultimately what happened with a lot of the starship troopers uh sequels which i know i saw two and three if i remember was dubbed marauders or something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. I, I think oh, that might have been might have been a sci-fi original like, was it called roughnecks what was that called yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think one of them was a sci-fi original i think you're right it was like tune in the <laughs> casper van <Dien laughs> is back it's CVD. All, it's back almost on the bugs. <laughs> it's almost like what happened with the slasher movie cycle with those, which is people just tried to duplicate the furniture of the first movie right. and miss the point of what kind of you know what what the kernel inside it really like what gave That's it. That's what we explored with Scream. Yes, mm-hmm. Scream was this takedown of the slasher genre, and then it became the template for the slasher yeah. genre. Indeed, yeah. and then of course after uh, any more notes on Starship Troopers? No, no, I'm I'm I I've love seen it that somewhat you're recently, us a great and it is. The thing that that stuck with me about uh, Starship Troopers the last time I watched it was just how well the effects actually held up. Yeah, I have. It, yeah. it was really cool. I mean, they they do take sort of a, a they don't look real. Yeah, but they don't have to. They just right. have to look like space bugs, and it's effective, and they do feel. Uh, it, it's such a good mix. It's kind of like a. Some of the later Tremors entries where there's a decent mix of CGI and practical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where they're standing on a bug's back, they're on a real surface. Yeah. And then it cuts wide and, you know, it can get a little wonky. But it, it does work well in the original Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And I, I just got the Blu-ray of it, so I'm very curious to mm-hmm. go back and revisit it sometime soon. Well, if um, I can, uh, my only note about it is if I can recommend uh, listening to any of his director commentaries. They're amazing. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, the Starship Trooper one, I believe, is where he says they were showing him designs for the brain bug and they were nearing like production and they like really needed to finalize it. But he like was not willing to sign off on it. He kept sending it back. And he, he this is his quote. He kept sending it back saying, no, no, it needs to look more like a vagina. <laughs> <laughs> Which is Isn't that his note the on most Verhoeven <laughs> quote ever. Is, yeah. yeah. I feel like Verhoeven and Rennie Harlan started as like a similar guy. And Verhoeven yeah. like said, I'm going to go, you know, I want to break out of the machine. And Rennie Harlan was like, can you put me further in the machine <laughs> so I can just work with it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That. Absolutely. You know, actually, if you want to, well, let's let's say, you know, if if you want to get into Verhoeven or at least get an understanding of what what his brain is like as a director, definitely a listen to any of his commentaries. Yes. I mean, they're 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 fun in the way a John Carpenter, Kurt Russell yes. commentary is, yeah. but they're also enlightening in the way you know sometimes. Uh, well, the intellectual rigor may be of a different form, but you know s- something like a Fincher commentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the guy is clearly very intelligent. Oh, he's not yeah. phoning it he, in. He no. knows exactly what his movies are about he's and a- how he, you know, the ways he can encode his ideas into them. It's his intentionality mm-hmm. that make. I mean, this is a good segue into talking about L. His mm-hmm. intentionality that I'm aware of because of listening to him speak about his movies is what makes something like L difficult for me mm-hmm. because I know that he does things with a lot of intention, but I am having trouble parsing out what that intention is mm-hmm. in regards to L. I just want to say this before we move on to yeah. L. 
if you're going to watch any commentary track for Verhoeven, watch Schwarzenegger's watch yeah watch a total recall with yes. Schwarzenegger uh, where he just describes everything happening in the movie. Yep. It might even be better than the movie. <laughs> it, there's literally <laughs> that's high praise. That's, is it Kim Basinger that plays his wife? Am I uh, right about Sharon that? Stone. Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone. That's Stone, it. Yeah. Sharon Stone. That the divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of the commentary is there. Uh, right when uh, you know he like wakes up with her the first time. Yep. He's like, "Ah, oh, this is the part where me and Sharon Stone start making out," and then they just start making out. And he's like, "Yes." Look at it. We're making out. He like he literally just describes that he got to make out with a hot woman for five minutes. Then eventually I will kill her, which you will see yeah. very soon. Yeah. It's a divorce. He straight up just describes the movie that's happening in front of you. He has no and this interesting is, things to say about it. He and this just is the man that it. is was married to Maria Shriver, I too. Know. I mean <laughs> Jeez. But yeah, I think the first thing we should say about L, uh, yes. if we wanna just, you know. I think the really the best place to start with this movie is the opening scene. Yes. And the first few shots, I think, are well, you, almost a good... You laughed <laughs> at something immediately in the movie that I spent the rest of the movie going, why did that make him laugh? Uh, you <laughs> laughed at the first shot of the cat, which I think is technically the first shot of the movie. Other it than is. that, it's sound design, right? Mm-hmm. There is uh, some sound overlaying the um, a slug, a uh, black slug in the... Um, for about five seconds, and then we cut immediately to a big close-up of a little kitty cat just staring off-screen completely dispassionately and almost detached at, you know, what basically is its owner, Isabelle Huppert, Michelle, uh, being raped by Mm -hmm. an um, uh, assailant, uh, by her her assaulter. Um, And I think, at least for me, what made me chuckle... And it, it, first of all, I should say I'm a huge fan of cats. So okay, anytime right. someone wants to open a movie on a hard close up of a cat, adorable cat, too. A, yeah. absolutely adorable, nice. I think it was a Russian, Russian, no, not a Russian blue, but it was a nice gray it had cat. Had that blue fur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, the, just the tenacity to you know open your movie. The first thing you're gonna see, it's not a wide shot of the event happening. It's just a cat looking off screen. <laughs> and if anything, that kind of signals one of the chief visual ideas for the opening scene, which is uh, the key shot in it is a wide shot with the camera. I think with a slight, not not a telephoto lens, but a normal lens that is slightly compressing the space that is viewing the event from a very uh, objective viewpoint from another room and mm-hmm. looking through a doorway mm-hmm. it's almost as if it's peering through you know mm. something like you're seeing something at a distance that you know you shouldn't see mm-hmm. which i think is a good way to fly to... on the wall it's cat on the floor, mm-hmm. cat on the floor. <laughs> yeah yeah it, i got it... a small chuckle out of the idea like knowing what the movie was uh, plot wise about mm-hmm. that it was a rape you know you you know that but when it first starts all you can it's just the cat and you hear the sound of it yeah and as far as we know at least presented in that moment is that it's just a cat watching people fuck yeah you know so if you eliminate any of the intention out of it i think that is inherently funny <laughs> because there's been plenty of times that i've been in uh we'll just say an exposed circumstance in front yeah. of an animal and devoid of any of the you know whatever the socialization of that act is that they catch you in they're just watching because it's a you know it's just happening. Yeah. You know, and then later we get more information, you know, almost immediately that it is a rape that's occurring. But yeah. to this cat, it's just 
It's just, hey, it's Tuesday. Well, not to try and unpack an image before we get into, like, any of the content of the movie, but because you chuckled at the cat so much, I spend the movie tracking the cat and paying attention to the cat and when the cat shows up. And uh, I noticed that the cat is actually not in the movie that much. She even has parties at her house where we never see the cat. The Mm -hmm. cat never comes in contact with anybody. We're not reminded of his presence in the house at all. Uh he only seems to appear in the movie, uh, at least when I was feeling like she might get attacked again. Mm-hmm. It, like, well, the cat was the catalyst to her being attacked because it was the cat being right. outside and she let the cat in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then later the cat serves as, as a cue and there's a, a great line too where she picks up the cat and yeah. says, you didn't have to scratch his eyes out, but he could have scratched him. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You owe me that much, but yeah. the cat's like, what do you want from me? I'm a yeah. cat. <laughs> well, and that was, it was like a nice cue. I kept getting nervous every time we did see the cat because mm-hmm. we only saw it in that one context and then we don't see it again until we're reminded that that is the context for the cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I noticed that one of the scenes is of a bird uh, hitting her window and then the cat sort of playing with the injured bird. Mm-hmm. There's an injured bird. The cat just toys with the injured bird. And then she takes the injured bird and throws it away, just disposes of it. Uh, and there is I do a scene. Like that she says to the cat, she's like, come on, give it up. And the cat kind of pulls it away like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's my bird. Uh, there is a scene later in the movie when she gets injured mm-hmm. and becomes an injured bird that then she literally calls the cat to, if you're following my metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, come get her and toy with her. Mm-hmm. Like it's. It's, it was very interesting. I felt like that was deliberate, but again, I don't actually know what he's doing with that, but it felt deliberate to me that we watched the cat, which was only really in that one context, that context of the aggressor, uh, aggress against this wounded bird, and then she becomes wounded and calls her aggressor mm-hmm. to come help her. I thought there was there's something there, but I don't quite know what or what to do with that it's an it's an interesting parallel to note nonetheless. I yeah. think though it is yeah you're right though the cat is not like a a prominent player per right. se, but I think it is interesting that he is used as a uh, a trigger for uh, her to psychologically recall. Yes, um, mm. the event later, of course. That's the first time it's triggered. I think actually at the sound of her cat. Right? Yep, the, the sound first, of her cat yeah. meowing. She yeah, has a recollection mm-hmm. of when she was raped, attacked, and raped mm-hmm. in her home. Um, but of course also there's a very fun moment in which the cat actually is used as a classic horror movie jump scare when she enters, uh, her home. If oh, I, you yeah, remember yeah, that yeah. one. Um, but yeah, she, we're, we're really spent a lot of time in the cat, but yeah. The, yeah, the, sorry. The, I just, no, I got caught up. I in have it. something interesting to say about the cat. Yeah. I read recently about how, like, if you were to, if you live alone with a dog and you die, that dog will mourn for you for a little while. He might eventually start to eat you. If you die, your cat will eat your eyeballs tonight. <laughs> it does not. It will do it because cats are classically survivors, and they yeah. can bond with you, and they can be your best friend. But when it comes to, you know, their their uh, allegiances, but to themselves. Yeah. And I think that Michelle, as a character, as we learn more and more about, you know, she has a pretty big betrayal of her best friend. Yeah. And her reasoning behind it was, hey, I I needed to get laid. Yeah. And that to me is a very cat mentality that was like, Mm -hmm. you know, it it didn't matter to me that it was wrong. It was something that that I had a need that needed to be fulfilled. You know, and the human says, hey, I'm sorry, but, you know, that doesn't undo it. Well, that's... I think the cat sort of in some way just as a thematic parallel that she is just going to roll with the punch. You put a cat outside, 
it, it's going to live a while because yeah. it's going to find out some way to to eat. They have survival instincts mm-hmm. that are just innate to them. Whereas, you know, you know, not that dogs don't have survival instincts, but, you know, cats, unless it has been domesticized its own, it's it's a its entire life, like it's never been an outdoor cat, it it doesn't lose the sort of feral instincts that it may have developed from early age. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's able to resort to them even if it's... Oh, that's interesting put, because yeah. this whole th- this whole movie has this, this uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but there's this shadow of her past hanging over the whole yep. movie mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. how she was this young, feral creature. Mm-hmm. That, or at least that's how people perceive her. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of, I think, I think that whole sort of because we should say also a lot of one of the big sort of threads in L is a a lot about how the past affects your present state Mm -hmm. as it does for anyone to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. But you know the the past, whether it's the the recent past in Mm -hmm. terms of her recalling uh, her attack, or if it's also her dealing with the the fallout of her father being a serial killer, and also people sort of. Blaming, actually, flat out shaming her, perceiving for, her to be part of it, yeah, or, being an yeah. accessory to the mm-hmm. murder. Which you know, I might all actually, you know, in terms of figuring out ways to start unpacking this movie, we could talk about um, the uh, the where it stands in terms of. Uh, I don't want to. Well, it's definitely. I wouldn't say it's 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 not anti-feminist and it's not pro-feminist. Right. But where it stands in terms of being a representation of the modern woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe who pair in a Lincoln Center talk believes the character to be post-feminist. Hmm. Uh, I don't even know. And part of it could be is I don't think I'm qualified to really uh, give a, a full definitive assertion, but I do think that this is a character that... Um, Clearly, I th- I, th- I think does have some post feminist leadings because there is that moment uh, where De Beauvoir, uh, Simone De Beauvoir, um, is uh, mentioned by her friend Anna. Uh, I think it was Anna, but um, and who who is that that you're referencing? Uh, Simone de Beauvoir is a French um, philosopher. I, I can't remember if she was the person who started. Uh, I can't remember what brand of feminism she is. Probably need the internet in order to. Uh, uh, but she, she was a very famous uh, French um, figure, uh, a woman's figure at the um, uh, late, I think it was early 20th century. I'm sure someone will write into uh, your Gmail account <laughs> yeah. and dis- dismiss me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I must confess. If you, do, if you do know what we're going at here, please do write in. Yeah, we would you know, love we'll to. We'll gladly uh, bring yeah. that on the yeah. air. Yeah, yeah, I'm De Beauvoir. I'm not a. I'm not oh, that's a, fine. I'm, I was just I'm, curious. I'm, oh, no, yeah. yeah. I, it's just something I noticed yep. uh, there because I'm. But um, in invoking sort of a, a, th- a famous f- uh, female philosopher who I'm, I'm presuming from what you said, I wrote think this about goes feminism. back to what I said. There's there's a certain team aspect to feminism, mm-hmm. you know, standing together. Mm-hmm. And she is a very isolated woman by choice. Yeah, because her survivor instinct, um, she was she was very reticent to go to the cops, mm-hmm. partially because of the way she was treated in the past, mm-hmm. partially just because the whole you know, uh, what's the word, re-traumatization of yep. it. But she also almost sees herself as, she says at one point, uh, when she brings it up at dinner, it's clearly bothering her. She yeah. says, I was assaulted. And they're like, really? And she goes, you know what? It's over. It's fine. Yeah. And we know it's it's not over. It's never right. over. It's not fine. But for her, it's more important for her to say, like, listen, no real permanent physical stuff. 
Yeah, I got a job. I got a video game to create. Yeah, you know, I've got I've got an idiot son to uh, <laughs> yeah. to somehow keep alive. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, so I think she's just very independent in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I don't even have a good definition of post feminism post feminism, but I'd say that she's feminist and that she is a strong woman that she don't need no man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'd say that she's not ready to just you know play with the team. It's I'm gonna do what I gotta do. I'm the cat. Mm-hmm. I will eat your eyes if you die tonight. Well, I, but was uh, interesting that you guys kept bringing that up about the cat survivor kind of thing because I did. There, it took me a while uh, as the movie was going on to unpack this, but it seemed to me the real key line of the movie is when she asks her attacker why, and he finally responds, "It was necessary." And then that's from that moment on is when she seems to start to make some changes about like who she is and how she interacts with other people mm-hmm. and. The, the things she's willing to take advantage of in other people seem to change. Uh, and I sort of wonder if, it, I mean, I don't know how to feel about this, but I, I wonder if that is sort of a, as you guys were saying, she's very much a, a uh, do what she has to to survive type mm-hmm. person, so she does what is necessary. Mm-hmm. And the explanation she got for why she was attacked was, well, for me, it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like she comes to some sort of like, understanding not just of him but herself in that moment well she does because that's also at that moment that's when she confesses to anna that she's been having an affair with anna's husband and her reason was i needed to get laid yeah so Mm -hmm. in a way she's saying it was necessary right so whereas it doesn't forgive the Mm -hmm. exactly it doesn't forgive the rapist right she does come to understand like maybe this is a need that much like my needs that I just don't understand. Well, and then mm-hmm. even his wife has that weird mo- the the attacker's wife has that weird moment with her at the end where she thanks her for giving her husband what he needed. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and actually n- now that yield internet has helped fill in my both ah, yes. blind spots here. Yes, if we can just quickly uh, go back to this. Yeah, please. The uh, yeah uh, she her brand of feminism was existential feminism, okay. and she was a primary primarily a figure in the forties uh, and fifties and sixties. Okay. Uh, this this might help out uh in on this I, I think this might be a good thread to explore um in terms of understanding what the movie's approach to uh Michelle as a woman is yeah, because yeah. uh not only was she an existential feminist, but she, of course, uh, Beau de Beauvoir apparently had an open relationship with Jean Paul Sartre oh, for a lot of her time, who is the the grandfather yes. of modern existential philosophies. So if you do want to look at it through that gaze, you could almost see that what the movie might be suggesting, and I shouldn't say is, I don't think this is a movie that is validating, uh, or is I don't think it is excusing the traumatic, the potentially traumatic fallout of rape. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm about to say is, I'm not saying the movie is vindicating that it was a good thing for her, right. but I think a lot of what this movie is about is her almost having a moment of self-actualization because of the fallout of the rape and sort of unpacking uh, not just like maybe deeper kink stuff within her, mm-hmm. but also her position of power and gives her the agency that she ha- might have had beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, we should say that this, you know, this movie well, a catalyst is very- can be any sort of thing, even a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and we should also say that this is a movie that is very self-contained mm-hmm. and is almost like an existential text because we don't really have much of an idea of what Michelle, who is always very elusive to us as a character, mm-hmm. part of that maybe who pairs sort of, uh, I don't want to say mystical, but sort of like her, um, she's almost kind of like always been like a ghost in terms mm-hmm. of it, of her screen performance. She yeah. plays a parody of herself in um, 
I heard Huckabee's yes. so talking yes. about existentialism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's it's a very uh I'll say it, it's a very silly representation yes. of her, you know, and that's kind of a loose understanding of existentialism as it's in itself the the movie, but she does uh it's weird. That movie almost seems to come after this one yeah. because it seems like a parody of precisely this character. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah. I mean, she's just good at that type of role. She is. I mean, she she's good at playing the. She has uh, a mystifying quality about her, mm, which I think yes. is what you were trying to get at. That's uh, a, that that's a great word there for you that. You should watch the piano teacher I tonight. Got to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so good. It's so good. Now, the, definitely a great companion piece for this yeah. one. But it's interesting because this whole story is very much self-contained. We yeah. have very little understanding about what happened to her beforehand. Right. Beside, you know, with the exception of the family history stuff. Yes. yes. It's all very in the moment. She's always at the center of i believe every scene in the movie i don't think there is a scene i think you're right i don't think we really break perspective from her Mm -hmm. so i think it's and because she is almost yeah i'm trying to picture one and because she she kind of has that sort of like unreliable narrator quality to her Uh because uh, she has such, you know, uh, an unfortunately fractured psyche from a traumatized yes. past and a terrible childhood, and of course the events mm-hmm. happening right now, and that she is reacting to them in a way that you know is not what we would consider the norm. I mean, I mean, it it is most certainly common that you know people. I who think have, it's understandable. Oh, it's definitely yeah. understandable. Like you know, one of the things that unfortunately, you know, well, not unfortunately, I shouldn't say because that's got a judgment to it. We know that not all. Um, rapes that occur in real life, they don't end with you know people telling telling mm, others that right. they were assaulted. Right. Uh, but I think the way that people react to her when she says, and yes. this may be another area in which we could talk about in terms of this being almost a bourgeois comedy of man, a comedy of bourgeois manners, mm-hmm. is that scene early on in the restaurant when yep. she says, "I was assaulted," mm. and that dude home. orders champagne in response. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Yeah. And he says, "Then the guy comes up with the champagne. He's like, maybe uh, maybe wait a couple minutes before you <laughs> yeah, before yeah, you yeah. pop that." That was brilliant. Yeah, mm-hmm. very very funny. But yeah, it's it's a real just almost. Uh, it, you want to you want to point at that and say it's like it, they're you know oh they're they're intentionally ignoring her or whatever but it really what that pointed to to me was this idea that like they exist in this bourgeois world where uh, rape is inconvenient and uh, not something that uh, uh, they just just something that they don't want to deal with they mm-hmm. they have they have high powered jobs and things they need to think about and be doing and. Oh, you got rapes? I, okay, great. Sorry, so we I feel don't like really that have time was more for this. Her, her angle was, yeah. uh, I got to move on. But like you could mm-hmm. tell it was it was bothering her. Yeah. It, was, it was bugging her a little bit. Because yeah. she does have, that's kind of a, weak isn't the right word, but that's a moment where her shield comes down mm-hmm. when she just kind of blurts it out. Like, I don't know how to get into this, yeah. but I was mm-hmm. assaulted. And to me, it felt like everyone else around there kind of responded at the dinner table like, oh shit, we have a, this this solid, this rock solid in appearance woman is now opening up about something. How do we react to this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then she she shuts it down and is just, you know, I'm going to move on, I'm going to move on. And they all go through the checklist, like, oh, you didn't go to the cops? Oh, you know, you, this, this, that, and the other thing. And then we, uh, you, you get the sense that that they're used to her being, you know, kind of a rock. Mm-hmm. And then... She's got everything all planned out. She's got everything all planned out, and they're used to it, so they almost all kind of jump on this tender moment and don't know how to 
how to react to her mm-hmm. tenderness. And then it's pretty much a hard cut mm-hmm. to her and her ex-husband walking home. Oh, right. And the people mm-hmm. driving by like, well, see you later. <laughs> yeah. and, and we move on. Yeah. You know, it's and we move on. And you wonder if that's part of the world that they're in or just part of that's how they know how to deal with her. Mm, sure, you know, yeah. She took her original trauma of her dad being a serial killer and turned herself into a you know, very successful person. She has mm-hmm. money. She owns mm-hmm. a company. Mm-hmm. I think maybe she has been seeking... Uh, a degree of control yes, throughout yeah, her absolutely. life, which is definitely seems to be because even think, even uh, people's perception of her is immediately out of her control. Because from a young age, there was this photograph taken of her that mm-hmm. has become a sort of renowned image of well, a she feral describes child, that moment you know? too, where she says, "Oh, and then we just started burning things." Yeah. And she didn't know that he killed right. people. It was just Dad says, "Burn things." Yeah. Oh, this is fun. Yeah, and it's suddenly this release, and it's that, that's going to define you now forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she's never really had control over what people think of her, really, mm. from a young age that was, like, taken from her. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Although, the fi- I think she's... Well, yeah, I mean, the control was taken away from her, but I, it's funny because she is... She is in control of how things around affect her. It's just that when, you know... I think in part of it could be, of course... A lot of this happens in the... Um, in the uh, the office, uh, her mm-hmm. uh, the video game studios that she mm-hmm. works at, um, is that you know because uh, a lot of her male colleagues are basically just assholes, mm-hmm. um, and she of course can't you know she she strives for that control even within you know, in terms of controlling other people mm-hmm. that domineering perspective and you know that might speak to the fact that you know because she is. Someone who is very professionally successful but seems to be very personally unsatisfied mm-hmm. um, with the way a lot of her life is. Not that she needs any sort of de- the, uh, a codependent or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it almost feels as if, you know, she, because of this past trauma that she knows, and I, th- and I think the character is aware of this, is that, you know, part of her was gone forever when she was a child and she's just trying to find some way to personally reach out and connect. And unfortunately, it just happens to be that the only one she seems to have any interest in connecting with is, of course, the man who assaulted her. her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, of course, I mean, she's had flings before, of course, yeah. and she's having the fling with Robert throughout mm-hmm. the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Anna's husband, uh, I think. I think it's a boyfriend, but okay. uh, it, might, it might be a husband. Um, okay. But, uh, but even even those seem to be just like a means to an end. Yeah, They're- there was a line, and I forget what set it off, but I believe it was I want to say it was her ex husband that said, "Life is filled with regrets. Don't add another one." And mm-hmm. I forget what he was referencing, mm-hmm. but I, I, I that line stuck with me because mm-hmm. I think that's sort of the battle that she's fighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, especially because like you you watch these scenes with like her son who's like this kind of insufferable shit of like a kid and well, he's he's really just kind of dumb. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. right. And it's she almost you watch these scenes where she like is clearly disappointed by her offspring. Uh she has that line where she says like uh you know, I let Anna breastfeed him uh because she lost her mm-hmm. child uh in child in, in in childbirth, I think. Yep. Uh stillborn. Stillborn, yeah. And uh, she's like, and I think, you know, it basically she imprinted onto him. As, and she, om- but she says that in a way where she almost is like okay with that because she's like almost glad that someone else gets to be the caretaker for him more she's than like her. passing the responsibility yeah. for mm-hmm. the, for the, you know, if she fed him first, right. maybe he would have turned out better. But right. eh, what can you do? Yeah. She has, um, uh, 
apologize for jumping around, but when yeah. she goes to visit her father in jail yes. to yes. find out that he's dead. He's already dead. The first thing she says is, I had like nine bullet nine points bullets. that I wanted to go over with you. And she starts to go into a disappointment, like I didn't get to address these, but instead shifts into, you killed yourself because I was coming. Yeah. I did this to yeah. you. Mm. I fixed the problem. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I am in Tim control. Allen. Yeah, mm-hmm. I am in, exactly. I am yeah. in control. And whereas I think a lot of people would have been like, man, I really regret that I didn't come sooner. Right. Mm-hmm. She was like, well, I guess I, f- I guess that fixed itself, didn't it? You know, I, I mm-hmm. set that off. Well, and I liked the idea that she was like, I had nine bullet points I wanted to say to him. And that's what she ends up saying to him. And the impression I got was like, oh, you figured out how to wrap all nine bullet points into one sentence. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, yeah. oh, right. Only one of these mattered, you mm-hmm. know, and, it, and it's this one. Indeed. And I think it's also just a... Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll end the pat like the sort of past trauma thread at least at least on my part in this. I yeah. think I think it's interesting that for those first ninety minutes or so in the movie, whenever the subject of her father comes up, it's not that she's just dismissive. She basically like it seems to be the only thing about her that maybe she's afraid of or that bothers her. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, it must have psychologically triggered something in her. Uh, that is a bit askew. Yeah. Uh, because there, you know, there is that uncertainty, as I said, there, there is that unreliable factor that, you know, she might have, you know, um, maybe not a psychosis, but like a sort of a neurosis, mm-hmm. um, because, uh, I don't want to say that, you know, uh, uh, maybe, maybe she might have got off on, you right. know, the idea of being an accessory to murder as a kid. Mm, I right. mean, she was clearly traumatized. I think but she I'll... does when she explains it to the neighbor, mm-hmm. and she's kind of revels in it when oh, she yeah. gets to the point oh, of there's glee. In you know, her it was there. it got it got crazy. It got out of hand. Mm-hmm. You know, she starts to really glow with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think that sort of tissue may help connect with a thread uh, of why she seems to learn that after uh, the one of the fallouts of the rape attack is that I think she has found out that she kind of enjoyed the thrill, even mm. though the force, you know, obviously being taken by force was, you know, the non-consensual element mm-hmm. was, you know, a bother, of course, because later when um, we are, uh, when a, uh, Patrick, um, the neighbor, invites mm-hmm. her and her well fuck up son mm-hmm. over uh, for wine and lasagna. When they go down to the basement, he can't deal with the fact that he she basically is wanting mm-hmm. right the you know the abuse on like basically right. a sadomasochistic level. And also the the interesting thing about the movie in general in terms of this thread, and I think this is you know Verhoeven, who we do sometimes think of as a trickster or prankster, just how deadly serious and nuanced this is, is that the movie finds a way, it it doesn't vindicate this sort of thought mentality, but it also never shames her for wanting this. Right, yeah. And I think it is a well, very... fantasies in- are a real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, one need only click a little too deep on Pornhub mm-hmm. to find out that that's a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I in th- you know, you could say that, you know, much like another movie, you know, like Blue Velvet, this is like a movie that is about rape fantasies and, mm-hmm. you know, is about rape in the abstract sense. And, I mean, if you read a lot of the uh, the criticism of this movie, the positive and the negative, a lot of people have described it as a black I read that one article rape. that you linked. I forget what the author's oh, name was. the Richard was. Brody article, yes. 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 Uh, who is, like, the major dissenting voice for the movie. And I have to admit, as someone who loves this movie, I'm I'm 
I'm very happy that someone as intelligent as he was as he is, you know, would write a dissenting opinion mm-hmm. that, you know, is nuanced. And I, I understand, I guess, where he's coming from and the mm-hmm. fact that he basically thinks that this is just uh it sounded like he was basically said that this was a movie that is being provocative and prodding for the sake of just, you know, throwing out shock effects and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um I I see where he's coming from. I just don't agree at all. Mm. Is where I say I I can I can definitely like, you know, understand how someone could be uh not offended, but basically just see this as a director is just stirring just the pot yanking to us stir around. The pot. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, just stirring the pot to stir in the pot. Um but what I think Verhoeven is doing here though is as I saying is, I think he is tapping into sexual politics mm-hmm. in a way that most movies or any sort of like art form or literary form at the moment in this very PC culture, mm-hmm. they don't want to approach that because mm-hmm. it's a lot of this is very touchy. Well, we hear red, red flag words and immediately shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I respect about this movie is, to me, it does not advocate or forgive or even offer any sort of apology on the part of the rapist. Right. Mm-hmm. But it does offer an understanding in terms of, you know, th- this guy also might be a victim of his own urges. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's all about how we act on desires. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. about having the desires. Yeah. And so I think this casts sort of a, an olive branch saying it's okay to have those desires, but there's clearly a fallout and a hefty one if you act on them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's something that is very hard to it's just very hard to engage with it's it's ooky to engage with mm-hmm. and nobody wants to be the person who's an apologist for a rapist mm-hmm. and i think that this movie could very easily be misconstrued as that i just disagree that it that it is that mm-hmm. yeah, but it also it also gives uh, verhoven a platform to sort of show how you know we may not want to deal with uh, the subject matter and you know a mature or like you know thought-provoking way and yet our culture is constantly you know uh is thrives with you know images much like in that video game yes. of you know of rape fantasies yep. in which you know it it just simply uses it as a superficial element yep. um but it doesn't want to go any further than just skin deep. It's kind of funny that you say that too, because the big argument about that video game is she's like, no, it needs to. She's basically saying like, sexier, sex it yeah, up, sex yeah. it up, and the guy's like, but it doesn't play. Yeah, you can't play the game. Yeah, and that is, I think, uh, kind of what we're getting at. You know, yeah. like you can. This is an erotic thriller that's not very sexy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Um, and, well, the one I definitely want to make on that uh, her as a video game designer. I wonder if it that could be. Uh, Isabel Huppert's interpretation of Verhoeven as a director, mm. because a lot you know Verhoeven is a guy who does like excess, and yeah. a lot of the point of his American films is they are excessive Super and continue excessive. to get more excessive just because I think he wants to make his satirical points more clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where because a lot of his films, the satire was completely uh, either not even like investigated by the public right. or it was confused for something else. Totally. Well, Starship like, Troopers was I'd thought buy to be that a fascist film. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you go right to RoboCop and the fact that one of the first things you said about RoboCop was I had a RoboCop action figure. That's yep. exactly what RoboCop is about. Like this whole consumer culture that's bad for us and mm-hmm. the only thing we know RoboCop as is a consumer product. It's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's an interesting, it, it, that is definitely something that I think happened with those, you know, 
it's us, the modern audience now, that has reconsidered those movies as satire. They mm-hmm. they did not seem to get read oh, that yeah. way in their release. I think it helps that we're a much more aware culture too yeah, now absolutely. in 2016 than we were yeah. back in the 80s and, and we're 90s. more forgiving for Ro- RoboCop because it so accurately predicted the future of Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's um you know yeah. we see that and go oh he's onto something we yeah. should probably listen. Yeah. Well, where's my five mile per gallon gas? Yeah. Bus? Right. Yeah. I still I still want that car. That thing is sexy. <laughs> um. But yeah, I think that's one of the things that Hooper might be doing with this uh, mm-hmm. performance in those office scenes is mm-hmm. her sort of like you know playing the I mean, well not just but she is the director of yes. her own company but yeah. sort of like a. The one she's kind of like the one that's like the one. It's a one moment back where she's on Verhoeven, kind of. It's a pair, like kind of like a mouthpiece for the yeah. sort of way Verhoeven sort of approaches his material. She kind of, I think she may know that all the stuff is basically excessive and probably like not nuanced and right. potentially offensive. But it is the kind of stuff that is going to sell. You know, mm, it's mm-hmm, gonna she's gonna mm-hmm. sell the cars with that sort of all that content. Yeah. Um, well, I do. I think to speak to some of what you guys were talking about the. The movie definitely does seem to a lot now that we're talking about it be about control uh, and and the place that control might have in sex for people. I, I think that there are levels of you know sex, like it or not, all, does sometimes come down to levels of control. I think different people enjoy different levels of control one way or the other in their sexual relationships, uh, and something that this movie maybe is exploring is this idea that. So she has kind of her ability to control her identity taken away from her as a kid. She spends her life trying to then sort of overtly gain that control back uh, over her identity uh, and then has and then encounters a situation where she has no control whatsoever, but then also discovers through that situation that there is actually a level of control she would like to both have and have taken away when it comes to her desires Mm. uh, that lie outside of her professional life, outside of her relationships with her friends. There's just a level of control that as much as she has taken control of herself, maybe what she discovers is that having some of that control taken away is, is a a pleasurable thing or something Mm -hmm. that is good for her, something that, she can she's deriving something out of that she wasn't getting out of her constant control I think of herself. That's that line life. that that stuck with me where he said, Life gives you plenty of regrets, don't add more. Yeah. Is almost just a way of saying like there are things you cannot control. Yeah. Just worry about the things you can. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's so I, I now that we're talking about it, I'm fascinated by that idea that she uncovers something about her relationship with control yeah mm-hmm. uh in the fallout of of the attack and what is what does uh kurt do when he says ah this this game doesn't work he has a controller in his hand yeah and he was like you can't control it he throws the, the <laughs> yeah, controller yeah. down yeah. it's like right there on the yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, and it isn't until the very end where she says to him like hey you did a pretty good job here right yeah. like i relinquished control of the control of our game to you and yeah you nailed it yeah mm-hmm. yeah Indeed. Uh, Go fuck my friend's husband. (laughs) (laughs) I think the one... um, I don't know if I can... uh, This kind of is, I guess, the... the, I can't really follow the control thread with this element, but uh, the control element with this thread, but I think it's interesting that the only sort of... uh, Well, not normal sex, because I wouldn't associate with... uh, I, I think the only sort of tender... Sex that is depicted in this movie is the um, the flirtation with lesbianism between her and her yes. friend Anna, which mm-hmm. I think it. Which the second time seeing this now, 
I might have been able to figure out one of the arcs for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, gender fluidity is something that goes all throughout a lot of Verhoeven's movies, mm-hmm. whether it's literal, like something like in Robocop and Starship Troopers, where the male and female locker rooms are the exact same places. Or, or even... Total Recall, where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is inside of a robot woman's body. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That, yep. I, I think I'm almost curious if one of the arcs for her, yeah. I mean, because of course, you know, if this movie, we should say, yeah, is it's very elusive. Yeah. It's very to pin down exactly what you is You couldn't tell from the, the hour surface. and six minutes of conversation we just had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This oh, movie yeah. is not dealing in uh, clarity necessarily. Well, it's not in a classical structure in any yeah. way. Oh, yeah, know? no. And it's very interesting to note that this actually was going to originally be an American production. It actually has an American scriptwriter, David Burke, on it. I was curious about that because mm-hmm. Verhoeven's not French. No, he yeah he's he's uh, he's from Holland Land. Right. I believe what happened with this uh, with this movie, uh, it's produced by Saeed Ben Saeed, who has become a darling for producing uh, auteur driven projects. He produced uh, Brian De Palma's film Passion ah, a couple okay. years ago, uh, and he, as far as I understand it, he basically is making a career out of bankrolling. Um, auteur driven filmmakers most of whom are american or became very popular in america okay who are kind of basically well not down on their luck but are not being given the funding that they yeah. really deserve to mm-hmm. sort of realize their visions mm-hmm. and i believe this project was originally passed around to a lot of like the a-listers in hollywood fascinating like and i would imagine fincher cross paths with this at some point it seems like the kind of thing that might potentially actually this was a well i think verhoven came Attached to it uh, after Saeed Ben Saeed um, bought it, pitched it. I, yeah. I think he pitched it to him. I I don't have all the intel on this, yeah. uh, but I believe that's what happened. But Verhoeven originally tried to make this in America, so he was attached. Yeah. But they were just looking for uh, American actresses to do it, uh, and apparently everyone said no. No. Now Isabel Huppert originally took interest in this, um, like on her own. Uh, on her own, if I remember, actually, now I think about, I think if I remember the Lincoln Center talk correctly, she had suggested Verhoeven to Saeed Ben Saeed. Verhoeven had been attached. Verhoeven then said, "Thank you, Isabel, but I think we're going to try to make this an American movie." And then about a month and a half or something, they came back, and he basically apologized to her <laughs> and said, "Will you come back and be an L?" Because yeah. quite frankly, you Naomi are Watts one. said no. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, quite frankly, though, I honestly can't think of anyone else than who pair. Oh, who would be oh like, she's perfect for it. She's yeah. phenomenal in this yeah. too. Like, I think regardless of. Um, your opinions of what the movie might be doing or trying to do. There's no arguing that she's like really fantastic in this movie. Indeed. Um, she okay. brings a lot to that role that may not necessarily be there on the page. It's hard to tell, I think. Oh, um, well, she, she's got such a lived in quality to her, yeah. to her acting style that, you know, I, I think that this is equal parts. I think this is a classic example of, you know, the, the, the role was there on the page and yeah. she unpacked it as yeah. an actor and yeah. was able to inject more nuances yes. into it. Um, ne- w- which I would say are probably necessary nuances to, to as you guys were saying, we're, 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 this whole movie is confronting an issue that we don't like to talk about. We very specifically don't like to talk mm-hmm. about it. I, I think the nuance she brings to is probably required to even get us to swallow that pill and start mm-hmm. trying to have the conversation. I think Indeed. it also helps. She's very realistically beautiful. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. does not have the star quality where you're like, oh, she's hot. 
I always I call I call her a forever babe. Yeah. Because she could be she's like a like a what's her name Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren, yeah. Where she could be on her deathbed, and I'd be like, hello, you know, like yeah, I, yeah. I don't, you know. But I I think there a lot of just the sexual dalliances she has are very believable because they're not melodramatic. Right. Mm-hmm. It feels. She feels like a real person, mm-hmm. but you also see why everybody is so entranced by yes, her. Yeah. Why she is a point of of focus. Of, for yeah, so focal people. point for yeah. for sex. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. She's uh, she's like undeniably desirable, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just in her appearance. It's very much to do with the uh, the 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 woman that she is, and she sort of espouses when she's interacting with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. she puts off this. I mean, Hubert's really good at putting off this. This she can be powerful. Oh yeah. But as this movie shows, under her power, there is some damage. There is some some fear, mm-hmm. and I think she captures that nicely. Yeah. yeah. And the movie, of course, also. I mean, we should say that you know, even though this is a movie that has a woman at the center of it, it, it blah. A woman is at the center of it. It is clearly directed by a man. And Absolutely. It is most certainly yes. a male. You know, an interesting sort of. You know, a movie to look at from what you know, Malvi, Laura Malvi, the academic would call mm-hmm. the male gaze. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I think though Verhoeven is uh, smart enough to know exactly like you know where his uh, element is. Well, not a spectator, but I should say as you know, a filmmaker is mm-hmm. in terms of uh, presenting this element on screen through a ma- the male, the you know, the veil of the male gaze. Yeah, uh, it's not like you know, he. It's, he's I think he's got an awareness. Of oh, he's absolutely. Sure. absolutely. Uh, oh yeah, he's sort of inviting us to view it through the feline gaze, if you will, <laughs> in terms of. Well, I mean, where the the cat at the beginning, he's just that taking detached. in what's going on. Right, yeah. like you said, it's a the movie's in a vacuum. It's very, mm-hmm. it's its own environment. You know, we have to be the cat on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you, I think if you don't mind. Uh, us going on this, I want to maybe talk a little bit about the filmmaking here. Yeah, please. I think it's interesting that Verhoeven has really freed himself up because he usually his movies are more formally minded. The cameras locked down and have a lot of. I like was thinking dolly that shots. through the whole thing, and a lot of this is has a very nice handheld feel that mm-hmm. doesn't feel like like unplanned. Like you know, they they just like shot around and built the scenes in the edit. Yeah, but it almost has a sort of like element where, you know, I don't want to say it's like a slasher point of view, but you know. There, the, there's almost like another spectator that is unacknowledged that mm-hmm. is sort of being given um, uh, privy to these all these privileged private moments. He used it twice that I noticed. First was when she came home and found the light on in her room and the laptop and some spooge on the bed. Mm-hmm. It was a, it wasn't handheld. And then when she starts to go down the hallway, it went very noticeably handheld. Mm-hmm. And then it felt like Halloween because mm-hmm. it was over her shoulder. It was handheld feeling. And then later they do the same thing and almost almost undo that language when she's being attacked by, was it Mark? Was it, what's his name? Patrick. 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 Yeah, the neighbor. Um, the neighbor. When she's being attacked by him the second time. And we suddenly see from the handheld point of view yep. of her son. Yep. And he sees them. He looks around yep. for a weapon, sees yep. the weapon, and then we break away from yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And those were two times where it, like, it, I noticed the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I think another time, and it may, you know, granted it's the first shots that we see, but one of the few times that the camera is locked down in a very sort of stately, um, has a very sort of deliberately static. Um, de- I guess demeanor, uh, pictorialization of the events is uh, when she is raped 
in the beginning. There's mm-hmm. we get when we go back later, we it is handheld and mm-hmm. it is rougher mm-hmm. uh, and has like sort of a. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's definitely more intense. Yeah. I mean, it, it is getting you up close there, but that first time, it's so objective and cold and clinical, yeah. and like the camera doesn't move. Yeah. Mm. Even when, of course, that cat runs away. I mean, right. it's it's it just has that sort of like cold. When we gaze. revisit that too, they add more information to it. Yes. You know, every mm-hmm. time we go back, they add more information. We see her reaching for the table. We even see a fantasy version of it. Oh, that so was great. Mean, that yeah. might be my favorite sequence yeah. in the movie. Mm-hmm. That was phenomenal. Where, where she, she just sort of fantasizes a different reaction, basically mm-hmm. a, a reaction where she has more control. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and and it you know when we get to the scene in the basement, then it almost seems like she's trying to find some marriage between the lack of control and the fantasized control because mm-hmm. she seems to take to being put in that position of no control, mm-hmm. but then demands that he continued treating her that way. Mm-hmm. And that's where he gets tripped up, which is like, no, I, I, I don't want this to be okay for you. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I get off on, is it not being okay for you? And she's sort of trying to find this marriage between the lack of control, but mm-hmm. also sort of controlling that lack of control, saying, I do want to be the control taken away from me. I think She's saying, I want you to take the control. And he has a problem with that because it's like, yeah, but that's its own form of control. I think you may have hit on a possible spine for the character, actually, yeah. in terms of figuring out the arc. Maybe this character, the, like the underlying subtext for this character, her whole objective is to find a way to modulate a sense of control. Because mm-hmm. when you talk about that fantasy moment, when we go back and revisit the rape, she beats him to death yes. with... Um, I think a, with uh, a blunt object, yeah, and, like, a, like an ashtray or something, mm-hmm. which could be seen as a premon- as a premonition of things to come later in the movie, for sure. But also, you know, could also be her sort of fantasizing about an extreme form of violence in which she is in total control. Yeah. But also, you know, she lashes out in a way that might have been um, uh, triggered, of course, by you know potential. Uh, by the past, you know, the, her, the, own, the, her, traumatic her own traumatic past, murder, and, mm-hmm. and, and that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so follow up question here yeah. to that, and I don't know how I would answer this. If the son didn't intervene during yeah. the second attack, was she, for lack of a better term, into that? Was she experiencing something that she has now put together and hoped would happen? I, I was trying to figure that out because she has that moment with him in the car beforehand where she says, Oh, now I realize what this is all about, and I'm going to turn you in. But that's is how she that's doing that right. to say to or draw is, him to do something I was gonna more say, violent? But is that part of is this part of the game now? Mm, is this now yeah. part of a game she's playing with? I don't him? know how I'd answer that. Yet. I don't either, uh, because there there I did get a sense by the end of the movie, and I I think that it was the son saving her from herself in a way, right? Or, mm-hmm. Well, know, I don't know. I got a sense by the end of the movie. This is going to sound strange, but I, I do think the movie was trying to give me this sense, uh, and also very intentionally trying to keep this vague. I got a sense by the end of the movie and we're here talking about control that there's, is there a reading of this where she's fully in control of everything that we see from moment? Oh, just manipulating. Is there, Mm -hmm. is there, I had a sense throughout it as it was going deeper and deeper and further and further that she is, she's almost manipulating every single situation. She's starting these parties because she wants these specific people to be in the same place at the same time so that she can, enact different jealousies that she's actually in control of. She's forcing jealousies though, between... Though, she does change the locks. I, right, I know. know. That's the thing. There are there are little details that I think pull me away from this sense that 
she's trying to be in control and manipulate everything. Mm -hmm. But then there's also these things where at the end, she goes off hand in hand with her friend that we know she had explored a sexual relationship with in the past. And the music has that same music cue of not necessarily idyllic, you know, oh, this is the idyllic ending for the two of them. More like, Mm -hmm. ooh, she's just caught another one in her web. There's like, it had that feel to it to me as well. Mm -hmm. It, It was like doing both of those things. I, I don't know. There was a strange sense I had of the whole thing where she's like the spider that has this web that she's pulling different people and different elements into at different times. Mm-hmm. But the movie also gives me details that pull me away from that reading of it, too. I, I, I don't really know how to feel about that, but there was certainly for me a level of how much control does she have throughout all of this movie? Mm-hmm. Or how she much is she at least trying to assert? Too, right. Know? How mm-hmm. much is she trying to assert in all of these moments, yeah. at the very least? I think... I have a feeling, at least with uh, what you're talking about in terms of did she sort of trigger what Patrick ultimately did for the the scene when he's died, I think that she is trying to potentially take the power away from him at that point in the movie entirely because she had tested those waters in the basement scene Mm -hmm. and he didn't read, yeah, I mean, well, he... He didn't get into it because he said this is not how it's supposed to be. Right. I think that he, she's still trying to prod him. Yeah. So as dicey as it may sound, I think that she, not that she planned, I think that that uh, attack at the end was, uh, that she was the chief motivator for that to occur. Uh Uh-huh. I I don't know if the son's intervention is meant to be taken as uh, him saving her from herself Mm. because... He's really stupid. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, right. Would he even be able to observe any yeah. of that? And I think he's very ignorant of maybe just sex in general because I, I think his girlfriend's the one that very much wears the pants. And that well, he has no control, but that is a moment of control for him. He's yeah. able to just, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I will say, as, as uh, even though this movie definitely is uh, very, I mean, I don't think it's misogynistic. Mm. I think it is definitely fa- uh, very much in favor of this who pair ca- uh, character as a power, as you know, a powerful force. Mm-hmm. I will say that I I would be surprised to read some critics who might have sexist issues though with the girlfriend mm-hmm. because she is the one character. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, I should say maybe youth youth in general in this movie has a bad is not totally. kind of given a bad rap actually because, yeah. uh, I mean again. The the son is just fucking stupid. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the well, Kurt even mm-hmm. clashes with her too, where he says your experience doesn't suit what we're trying to do here, and she just does the like, shut up, kid, I'm in charge. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is my company. There there was even a moment in the hospital when the baby is born when uh you know the girl from- one of the best laughs in the whole oh, movie. yeah yeah <laughs> well and, Omar <laughs> but there's a moment in there for me anyway where we've got the girlfriend and the dumb son and then. <laughs> Their uh their black companion, who mm-hmm. I, I think we can all assume is probably the father of that baby, <laughs> yeah. based on what unfolds. <laughs> but all three of them are smiling in joy throughout that scene. Mm-hmm. The 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 black suitor, we'll call him maybe mm-hmm. the the girlfriend. Omar, uh, yeah, Omar. <laughs> Omar. Uh, the girlfriend and the dumb son are all elated in that moment. And there was a moment where I thought one of the things that was going to be revealed later in the movie was that like. No, this was all their plan. Like they, they had decided to start a family unit this way. This, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. none of them have a problem with this. They are all very comfortable. This is an arrangement they all made. But these older characters have no understanding that 
this is now a new sexual politic that uh, it you know ha- is okay for their generation. Their mm-hmm. generation is comfortable with. That's never revealed in the movie. It turns out he's just a fucking idiot and yeah, does yeah, yeah. not know what's going on with his own children or mm-hmm. lack thereof. You know, like he's just that dumb. But I, I really thought for a minute that there was going to be this sort of almost like generational gap in understanding of like sexual politics. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. uh, they were so elated at the birth of this baby that seemed so clearly problematic. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, gender fluidity and also, you know, castration politics is definitely something that's very much in Verhoeven cinema. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, basic instinct, the fourth man, you know, the fourth man, of course, flirts with the idea of castration, anxiety, and desire. Mm-hmm. The oh, desire to be castrated, but also being frightened of it at the same time. Huh. In terms of the son, I think it's, I don't know where to put it because he clearly wants to be with his girlfriend, but at the yeah. same time, he's almost asexual. Yeah. I mean, he well, almost has no desire to engage. I mean, he's dumb enough to like be. I, I'm just curious if he's dumb enough to be swindled by the fact that Omar is clearly the father, or if it's just that he's more interested in the idea of I, having. I just remembered that. something, which is he has that line when she finally comes to take the baby away, and he kind of turns to his mom and basically says, I just wanted to prove that I could be a good dad. Mm-hmm. I, in myself, I see a good father. That I thought I could be a good dad. Right, yeah. and mm-hmm. so I almost wonder if that line was meant to be a recognition of, no, Mom, I'm not that fucking dumb. I knew that was not my kid. Mm-hmm. I just needed to I prove need to yeah. you and me and everyone else that I'm not a fucking dumb loser. And she has a moment like that later loser. Mm-hmm. when she's talking to the neighbor and she's like, I'm a grandmother. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, congratulations. She's leaving. She's like, I don't know why I, don't I said know why that. I said why that. did I say that? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe the youth, ha- at, least, at least those two youths, maybe they had come off bad. Badly, maybe because they are almost representative of the traditional forms of bourgeois values, um. whereas everything else, like the adults, are almost perverted. Like they should stand for these sort of staunch bourgeois right. values, and and basically they don't adhere to any of them. Any Everyone of is sort of like you know perverted in some way yeah. or other. I think they all <laughs> dealt with that in the past. Like she mm-hmm. did have a mm-hmm. family unit; mm-hmm. it was abusive. Mm-hmm. Got out. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody seems to have had a past of. Trying to do the normal thing, yeah. and then yeah, life got that in the doesn't way. work for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's uh, without throwing out an esoteric re- reference here. I-, I think that's where where I find the movie to be very Bunuelian in terms of its comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bunuelian in terms of Luis Bunuel, the surrealist filmmaker who's best known for most uh, to most people for making Unchained and Delu, but he also made a string of great French movies in the sixties and seventies, chiefly Belle I'm, de Jour. Uh, I'm familiar discre- with his name only because of the film spotting podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, the, it, a lot of his films later in his career uh, were c- very, you know, heavy critiques of the bourgeois, uh, mm-hmm. the bourgeoisie in Europe at that time. Chiefly, a Belle de Jour, which is about a cold uh, housewife who decides to become, um, well, basically a, a high class uh, prostitute hmm. and goes to work at a at a brothel mm-hmm. uh, while her husband is away. And part of that's just because. She has uh, rep- repressed S&M um, mm-hmm. fetishes. And then, of course, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is a classic sort of absurdist surreal comedy about, you know, basically debasing bourgeois values. Mm-hmm. And The Phantom of Liberty is another one of those. But I think, you know, it's almost as if uh, and Verhoeven, who is a big Bunuel fan, is sort of like bringing that into this movie to sort of like critique that sort of faux bourgeois uh, system that is still potentially prescient in uh, Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think that this might be something that was added to the picture later when it became a French production as opposed to an American. Because we should say, even though this movie is directed by um, 
uh, a man from Dutch, it is distinctly French. Oh, it. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the whole time that like almost part of what works about the comedy is that this is a French erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, there's something about our American notion of Mm -hmm. the French erotic thriller that Mm -hmm. I think that in the same way that like his big block, his big sci-fi blockbusters played very much into this American sense of blockbusters, but then we're kind of pulling that apart and being Mm -hmm. a little subversive. Mm -hmm. This is very much playing into the American notion of specifically the French oh, erotic yeah, yeah. thriller, like yeah. what we think of as the silly, goofy French thriller where everybody mm-hmm. is fucking and sexing and, and but fin. It, yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> Adul- and, but, adultery everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's easy. This one's like subverting she's a bitch, all of that, no? Right? Oh yeah, yeah. But I think this one though is oddly accessible for a lot of American audiences because it is a French film that is being directed by a foreigner of yes. that land. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Much like, you know, you know, maybe I'm just bringing this up because I watched it last night, much like uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, who's an Italian director back in the 60s and 70s, uh, went to England to make his first English language film, Blow Up, mm-hmm. and is viewing Swinging mm-hmm. London. That. That's pretty from, good. Yeah, and is viewing London, Swinging London, from an, a foreigner standpoint. Mm-hmm. So even... 50 years divorced, because, I mean, like, Swing in London, we don't have any sort of understanding no, no of that beyond, that. like, you know, the fact that it was a thing of the 60s, but we I've can almost... Austin Powers. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But, also, uh, but also, we can penetrate that world much easier because we are seeing it through the eyes of a, Another a foreigner. foreigner. Yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of like what I think Verhoeven's almost doing with this, is we can clue in, as Americans, into a lot of these potentially... Uh, uh, country-specific values or systems because he is viewing them from the outside as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But, but still um, not necessarily from our lens. Oh, right? no, not from, from our lens. lens. But, that's a great but way to kind of bridge the gap. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's a gateway into it. It's interesting that it was based on an English-language script, too, that we start with something that maybe is accessible to Americans because it's an English-language thing, but it gets directed mm-hmm. by a guy from Holland in the French language taking mm-hmm. place in France. It's an interesting amalgamation of perspectives and ideas that, you know, I guess mm-hmm. sort of culminate in a, in a film that uh, I guess become, you know, it becomes, it's hard to parse out like, Oh, well this is specifically an American idea or this is specifically a, you know, there's no, I guess, culturalisms mm-hmm. quote unquote to it mm-hmm. because it's such an amalgamation of these different uh, uh, cultures being sort of like, different cultural perspectives being mm-hmm. like forced together just by like circumstance almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there isn't like a specificity right. to it. It's, it's, it may like start from like, you know, as like, you know, it may start with the French values, but ultimately sort of breaks them down. If you will, yeah. like before, you know, by the time you get to the end, um, Last year, I was tasked with reviewing Fifty Shades of Grey, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and uh, which I reluctantly enjoyed. Yeah. To say the truth, but one of the things that actually in the review I actually mentioned that I wished Paul Verhoeven made it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I always defend that movie with, uh, if I'm ever in a position where I feel like defending it, <laughs> I, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. But if that movie was in French, people would have shit the bed on how much they loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's. It's stupid, but it's true. I, I was literally thinking about you, that quote because you, you, I remember you saying that about the movie while we were watching this. I was like, fascinating. This is in French. It's almost like we're buying into it because, again, mm-hmm. that American idea of what a French erotic thriller is. Mm-hmm. You know? I think it's also the American idea of the foreign film as being something to appreciate. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Because, you know. That, like, mm-hmm. if this were in English in an American film, I actually think it would be, like, much dirtier and probably have gotten an even more distinctly negative reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because it's in French, 
we as for some reason as oh, film yeah. goers yeah. look oh, at those it French go, they are well, so sexy but we don't immediately judge it as deplorable yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we judge it at for some reason we just go well this is art uh, let's investigate yeah, it's yeah. a foreign pre- it's a foreign item of prestige which yeah. might we should also explain when we saw this we saw this at a Sunday 1 p.m. show with a crowd who I don't think was clued into the fact that it is a black comedy yeah, oh yeah. totally and we should say that you know it is you know at as abhorrent as some of the stuff is, I think Verhoeven does want you to laugh at a lot of the. I was the very much smiling and enjoying myself throughout, mm-hmm. despite truly still, even after having this conversation, feeling a bit at odds with the movie because they're you know, um, it, it's pretty hard I think to parse through this and get to the point where you go, hey, that's not a defense of rape. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I I am there, I'm with you guys on that, but I think it's hard to get there. Oh, yeah, so, I mean, you gotta engage with it. Yeah, it. yeah, and and so I think, like, um, it, it's pretty easy to m- probably miss the comedy of it. Mm. You know, like, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I was able to get there. There's a great there. gag at the end, and I forget what the line is that sets it off. She's being interviewed by the cop yeah. about the rape that just occurred. And I forget what she says. It's something real dark, and they're just carrying the body out yeah, behind the cop. God, yeah. And she just, you know, half regards it. I, I wish I could remember the light. It was so fucking yeah. funny, though. Funniest thing that scene's almost a uh, well, not a crib, but I would say it, it's almost like an homage to the scene. Uh, have Have you guys seen the Brian De Palma film Body Double? Oh yeah, I have. have not. You, okay, um, definitely see Body Double. Body Double's like amazing. Um, there's a great moment. In, you might remember this, Dan. Um, when uh, after the screwdriver scene, mm-hmm. um, when the staunch f- n- uh, detective who's come out of a 1940s noir, <laughs> oh, yeah. Jake, uh, Jake Scully, he says, oh? "Yeah, yep, uh, yeah." <laughs> the, the Craig Wasson character is named Jake Scully, so maybe, maybe you're a distant relative of the wonderful Craig Wasson right there. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how that works. <laughs> hey, I, I would love to have Craig Wasson as my dad. <laughs> um, but I, there is a moment in that scene where uh, they use the carrying the body uh, yeah, yeah, out yeah. the the cavity in a uh, in a body bag out as a joke punctuation as a punctuation mark, and it's kind of placed in this scene in L. Yeah. in the same manner. Oh, it, made, mm-hmm. it got a good laugh out of me actually. Oh, yeah. the way they just both pause as the body mm-hmm. passes. And then turn back to each other and continue the conversation they were having. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the one note before I forget it and uh, go for. It. I'm gonna listen through the bathroom door. Oh, please. Oh, no problem. Man. The one thing I I think regarding the f- going back to the fact of uh, us as Americans maybe not knowing how to deal with this movie. Yeah. I think it might speak to the fact that a lot of what's happened in terms of uh rape politics and um uh, you know, the, the uh you know the unfortunate sort of like current events of the past two years yes. um you know whether it be you know stupid university jocks or whatever campus stuff, yeah, campus and, stuff yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, could be the fact that the men's rights activists that have sort of taken to well, making these like crazy uh, uh manifestos about sexual politics and things like that mm-hmm. and, yeah basically you know patriarchally minded douchebags yes, and stuff like yeah, that yeah, yeah. what they feel like they deserve and aren't getting basically is this may not be prominent in europe though and that may be why they're willing to maybe make a movie like this yeah. and why it might be easier to talk about the subject matter if you were like a man who lived in Fr- a man or woman who lived right. in france or italy or wherever they may not have the same recent cultural wrestling with uh I guess uh, literally like trials where we do defend rapists essentially and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. I th- and I think I think it's interesting now that I think this is kind of a without 
getting on a soapbox here. I think yeah. this is, uh, it's not just, I'm not endorsing this movie just because it, it's a good talking point for what, you know, might be some sort of cultural anxieties that we have about the time, uh, that we have right now about current events. Yeah. But it's also that, you know, I mean, this is a good sort of like, this movie is like a good sort of talking point in terms of dealing with stuff that, you know, we might not want to address. Right. Uh, about we got this. into this with Arrival in we the did. last episode. And how, especially now at a time where a lot of people are wondering how to rectify the political direction that we're now headed. Mm -hmm. And the hardest part about it is coming to terms with the fact that we're going to have to discuss undiscussable things with people whom we're, who we're used to dismissing. Yeah. And it sucks. Yeah. I don't want to talk to a right. racist. But I gotta now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. We gotta now. It's now our I gotta talk to the racist that lives in me. You know, yeah. what I mean? we have to do that. And yeah. so I think in the advocacy of of uh what's the word? Um entertaining an idea without necessarily um subscribing to it just as a means of conversation, I think that in tune with something like a rival, you know, words can be weapons, they can be tools. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, this movie definitely is an invitation to just consider some perspective, even if it's the perspective of, of something deplorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I think mm -hmm. that's valuable. Yeah. I think that speaks to the cultural anxieties. I, mm -hmm. I don't want to have, you know, I, I don't, I feel weird being a part of any sort of, so, you know, social rape conversation because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's not really in my world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, it, it's a conversation that I, I feel it, it's my responsibility to eventually have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know, because to, I think like it or not, it's like it's not in my personal world, but it is in my world. It's in my world, you know, you know? and I as a spokes, you know, unfortunately, we are all spokespeople for whatever we look like, whatever we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a responsibility that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you have to be aware of the other side. You can't just Absolutely. dismiss it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's another interesting angle you could come at this movie from is it's an expression of very much repressed anxieties that we have mm -hmm. over this subject. Um, you know, I, I, there's certainly an argument out there that, uh, you know, rape itself is, is uh, an expression of, of a certain amount of repression. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it is interesting, I guess we could, you could look at the movie from that lens where it's strictly, it is just an expression of these repressed anxieties. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and even at that, I think there's quite a bit of value to well, it. Well, even that guy, he lives in a somewhat repressed world. His wife is extremely religious. Oh, yeah. He has yeah, to I watch about that you know, the whole church time. at midnight yeah. and ends up being like, the most open person in the in the whole movie, mm -hmm. it, it seems. Yeah. But you know, there there's something that comes with that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah, but before before we go, you know, before we go on to the next thing, I definitely want to say the uh, the the religious iconography here, which is something that is prevalent in a lot of Paul Verhoeven's films. Mm -hmm. I like how, in you know, some people I know have thought it's on think thought of it as on the nose, but I really liked how he was able to sort of inject this sort of uh, religious religious piety. Uh, with the family lives across the street mm -hmm. um, with the wife. And the funniest thing is actually, if this was an American film, I think the wife would be looked, uh, that wife um, of Patrick's wife would be looked at as basically just a, a weirdo. And yeah. Someone, uh -huh. yeah, it would could be completely negative in terms yeah. of its approach toward uh, her, you know, basically, basically being a very religious woman. Yeah. Uh, when she leaves the 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 movie, she's literally packing Jesus statues into a yeah. truck and getting out of town. Yeah. That's, like, no, yeah. that's wild. But it's it's interesting that you know Verhoeven 
does not condescend to her at all. She, no. And, and I think that's because, I mean, we should say Verhoeven is a Jesus scholar in his own right. He wrote a book uh, called Jesus of Nazareth huh. that was published in the English language about five or six years ago. And, you know, I mean, I could, the religious iconography is there through all of his work. I mean, there's like crucifixion imagery in The Fourth Man. Uh, there's uh, actually my current Facebook cover photo is uh, Rudger Hauer in Flesh and Blood, uh with a halo um, mm. behind his head. Uh, not much in basic instinct from memory, but of course, total recall. I mean, there's a messianic element oh, yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. And also the final shot yes. with that. Yeah, Robocop, he walks on water at, at one point. <laughs> oh, well, he, well, he comes well, back from the dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he comes <laughs> back from the dead. He's basically crucified <laughs> he's and he's coming back from the dead. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that in this movie, you know, he basically... In, incorporates religious iconography and religious themes uh, again as a subset of the sort of bourgeois values. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she even <laughs> says to her, she's like, uh, yeah, I, you know, I took a hit moving, but uh, I got a really good realtor. You mm-hmm. want him? Yeah. Like, yep. take this pamphlet? And she's like, ah, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and, and, yeah, I mean, it's funny because even when the movie kind of has its cake and eats it too about those characters, like, you know, there are some times where the movie's allegiances toward them or attitude toward them, like, you know, may waver. Mm-hmm. It's funny because everyone else, everyone in this movie, I wouldn't know, I would dare not call the movie humanistic. Mm-hmm. Right. But it it is not, it is not pessimistic or cynical toward any of them. It, it seems it to have sympathy have their, for everybody. Yeah. I, maybe, I would say. Maybe not sympathy for me. I mean, I, I would say it has empathy, empathy for them. Empathy, yeah, yeah. It that is, makes more sense. It lets them yeah. have their day. Yeah. But it also is willing to call into question or interrogate some of their mm-hmm. values. Yeah. And that yeah. way it kind of reminds me of a movie like Happiness, which plays it for humor. Mm. But that's a movie where there's some, uh, I and mean, there's always the one character who's just pretty deplorable, but it, it, it there's an empathy to it. Um, You're talking about the Kyle. psychologist, yes, uh, the father. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's literally, and I've mentioned this on the show yeah. before, a madcap scene where he's trying to get a rape drug into a kid's sandwich. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. But the only reason we can even begin to find it hilarious is because of the empathy towards this character. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's wild. It, that's actually the special case because that character is like, I mean, they don't beat around the bush. I mean, he is introduced pretty much as a pedophile. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, that is a, a moment of comedy when, dare I say... I can't say this on the audience's end, but the movie almost wants him to successfully put oh, that yeah. drug in. Yeah, the you're rooting for him. Yeah. Functionally, I mean, you're not rooting yeah. for him personally, right. the poor kid. But uh, yeah, the yeah. language of movies and how things like that are sort of put together and assembled. Exactly. You're like, yeah, mm-hmm. got to get that in there. Like, oh, yeah. she just turned yeah. around. You got to hide the pill. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's it's yeah. yeah. And much like Solans, it just figures that Verhoeven would kind of like you know. As I said, you know, have his cake and eat it too. In He's terms toying of his with you a little the, bit. Oh, absolutely. That's that yeah. prankster mm-hmm. yeah. mentality that you're talking about. Yeah, indeed. None of the music stuck out to me. Did anyone note any of the music or the score? I can't really isolate a piece oh. of it. Is there any? I don't even. I couldn't even tell you what it sounds like. No, yeah. I. I would say I got a general um, sense of it. How do I explain this? It. Like in hindsight, I'm just playing the Eyes Wide Shut score. Right. And it, it doesn't even fit, but that's just what, what's playing. But no, I know that's not what it was. Nothing, it wasn't present. Yeah, nothing specific called out to me, but more like an overriding... It gave it. I felt like it gave the movie some sort of... Um, it Partially the music is what gave me that sense that she maybe has more control over some of these situations than we're even aware of. Mm. Uh, the, the music tended to... My memory of it is it tended to... to 
kind of go the direction of um oh what's the word for this where where music is sort of leading your emotions music is sort of leading telegraphing you, yeah telegraphing Telegraph, yeah. Mickey Mouse music feel certain ways mm-hmm. that's how it felt to me but it felt like it was very intentionally used as that tool to maybe make your perspective be uh, throw your perspective off on certain mm-hmm. scenes i think it was sort of trying to give me feelings that I maybe shouldn't have had about certain characters or certain sequences. Yeah. I, I I have to say, I do... And I agree, even though I've seen this movie twice now, I even remember... I, I had a very vivid memory of the melody for the opening credits. Okay. Um, first time I saw it. And maybe it's because it reminded me a lot of uh, some of the cues that Jerry Goldsmith uh, composed for Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. Um but it has that sort of lush, romantic, almost kind of like early 20th century Russian um, vibe sure. to it. Like, um, well, not Prokofiev, um, but it, it has like a, a sort of a romantic, um, uh, a room. It, it's got, it's got like a, it's not like a John Williams score. It's no, not yeah, sweeping. Yeah. It's, it, it's almost in terms of movie composers. It's almost what you might get from like a Badalamenti mm, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even some of Pino Donaggio's work mm-hmm. that he did for De Palma. I think Badalamenti is a pretty good comparison. I wish I, I wish I paid more attention to it because I love Badalamenti. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I was looking up the composer for this. And her name is uh, Anne Dudley. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she is part of the synth pop band, The Art of Noise. Oh, interesting. Yep. And she, so she's she's a Firestarter fame. Mm. She she had previously, I think she did the, the score for Black Book as well. Cause, uh, I believe Verhoeven purportedly really likes to work uh, consistently with a lot of his colla- uh, work with collaborators mm-hmm. over certain movies. And unfortunately... Um, I'm going to butcher his last name, but I know his previous composers like Jerry Goldsmith, Basil, Paul. He did do Black Book. He did do Black yeah. Book? Okay. Basil, Paul Adoris. Uh, mm. the, the, and the, Monkey Bone. She did Monkey Bone. Ah. <laughs> Just as an aside, everyone, please go back and revisit Monkey Bone. <laughs> it's not a great movie, but I'm you know I'm a Turturro what? fan, so I'm in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? It's not a great movie, and as I understand it, it basically was taken away from Selleck while he was shooting it, but... That's a very weird, weird early ninety, early two thousand studio picture that yeah. kind of needs to be looked at again. But I never anyway. saw it, so I'd be I would mm-hmm. love to visit it now. Yeah, it, it it's again as I was talking about it's 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 a it's a relic from a time when studio pictures could have personality yeah. to them. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the uh Ver, Verhoeven's a lot of his previous composers had unfortunately passed away, like Goldsmith passed away, Polidorus, who did the RoboCop and um mm-hmm. the um. He didn't. I, I don't think he did Total Recall, but I know he did Starship Troopers. I know he had passed away. Mm. So yeah, I think this the um, Anne. What's her last Anne name? Dudley. Anne Who Dudley. Also did the Crying Game, which I think is kind of linked tonally to what we just saw. Uh. Mm. Uh, yeah, I I, th- I think she really I think she really delivers a good score. It, it's not it's not a score that is calling attention to itself no. in the way of a lot of other Verhoeven scores. Like, mm. like I defy it's you to the for, atmosphere mm-hmm. more than it's, I would notice it if it was gone. Yeah. yeah. Like it's not, it is not announcing to be remembered like the, um, like the drop sequence, uh, cue in uh, starship troopers. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Or of course the theme to Robocop uh-huh. Uh-huh. or even the themes to total recall. Yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like basic instinct or even the fourth man scores. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's complementary as opposed to driving or yeah, yeah, serving yeah. as sort of mm-hmm. like you know a narrative counterpart. It's it's yeah. sort of just laying underneath there. 
I wouldn't mm-hmm. like it if any of the attacks were telegraphed. No. Because, like, even that second attack where she leaves the door unlocked on purpose, yeah. like, considers it, and, you know, where you know something's coming. Yeah. It was better to have that, you know, to get the jump yeah. on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you just get the uh, the sound effect of the hands hitting the side yes. of the yeah. panels as opposed to, like, you know, <laughs> some yeah, sort of, like, you yeah. know. Another great moment. <laughs> Best side character in this movie when they're checking out the apartment Yo. and the girlfriend freaks out and the guy <laughs> hits the wall and the realtor's like, whoa, buddy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't own the place yet. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> that was yeah. a great scene, actually. That, that was absolutely. that apartment hunting scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, you know, the... Uh, the youth valuing their TV yes. over the uh, yeah. the oven for uh-huh. that. Oh, Don't you uh-huh. need yeah. an oven more? Yeah, yeah. You know, the apartment comes fully equipped. <laughs> yeah, Lord. Yeah. Does anyone else have anything? Yeah, to say note about this? we should move on so. to our list. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like I still stand in a weird position with this movie, where mm-hmm. certainly uh, the the content is so troubling to me that I I certainly have trouble confronting it in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I. Also, kind of think that that's also like the that not the point, but that that is exactly what he's needling. You're at. gonna be thinking about it tomorrow, yeah. and you're gonna mm-hmm. see it again. That's it, exactly what he's needling at. Yeah. It yeah. is my desire to go like, no, 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 I, I, mm-hmm. get me out of here. You know, like he the, he sort of is pushing at my desire to want to back away into the night and not have mm-hmm. to talk about this. You know, it's also not an easy pill to swallow. No, though. you need. I mean, it is a movie that does require like whether you like it or not. It does deserve contemplation. Yes, mm-hmm. you, you can't. I mean, it's not a movie in which you know, once it's over, you know, that's all it is. You I, I will really say, I undoubtedly <laughs> enjoyed watching this. You know what I mean? It was like it was a good movie. I undoubtedly enjoyed watching it, and I thought the performances were really good and interesting, and the filmmaking was fascinating to me mm-hmm. just because it was not familiar to me as Verhoeven filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like this felt. In, again, I've not seen a lot of his movies. I've seen his three big I think American he's sci-fi. A little more movies. restrained now. It's the yeah. same transformation that we watched with Aronofsky and Fincher. We talk about it with Fincher, Danny a lot. Boyle. Yeah, where they they still hold on to their signature style, but it's it's refined. Yeah, he. I mean, he has a little bit of restraint. It definitely has restraint. Although I think part of it's just because he's not working within the American market right. now. Yeah, because uh, Black Book. Even though Black Book does have a lot, like you know, a lot of like you know, some ridiculous moments. I mean. I mean, the whole sort of like idea behind the movie is a, a la- is a Jewish singer who is actually falls in love with a Nazi. Uh, I mean, nice. it does have like I mean, it does have some restraint. Well, not, restraint for Verhoeven standards is what I'd say that <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you'd see from his early Dutch films yeah. like Turkish Delight or The Fourth Man or Soldier mm-hmm. of Orange. But you know, he. I just think it's so. It just fills me with such joy to know that. L is the product of a man who is approaching 80 and he still has not calmed the fuck down yeah, at all. Yeah, I uh-huh. mean, he is, you know, it's like it's like Hodorowski with his last movie, Dance he, of Reality. Yeah. I mean, he 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 he's an older and wiser filmmaker, but he hasn't lost the desire to want to jolt the audience. That's how yeah. I know I mean I, I really did love this movie. That was probably my favorite thing about things like Shutter Island and Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. And I was like, oh Scorsese's, you know, hundred years he old. Lost but he's like pumping, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. he he's he, He's going for it. Yeah, there's there's an actual like youthful vigor to those yeah. films, mm-hmm. and I think you could see the same thing here. There's mm-hmm. there's certainly a, his need to provocate is uh, is 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 pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. That even at his age, he's still. Oh yeah, and there's other filmmakers who have that. Like I mean, I'm a big De Palma fan, and mm-hmm. I, I defend Passion heavily. I really I like Passion a lot. Uh, the, 
it's him doing his thriller thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it, but I think he's up to some very interesting stuff. But in that movie, particularly in terms of women in the workplace and the way a lot of male-oriented mm-hmm. um, jobs, uh, women are forced to sort of put on, you know, performances. Oh, yeah. Keep smiling. That stuff. Yep. Um, and also how it's like a survival technique to, mm. so that they can actually like live, you know, work and make a living independently. But, you know, and there are just filmmakers that out there like that, you know, they just, they still keep doing their thing. Friedkin is another one of those. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, he just turned 80. Killer Joe came out a couple of years Killer ago. So and I haven't well, seen that yet. So, oh, so yeah. it's so great. I mean, it, it, it's, it is mean toward its characters. It's a very mean spirited movie, but it's a lot of fun. It's yeah. a great. It's a great sort of. That's actually Emil Hirsch's character, and that Ooh. was first played ever on stage by Michael Shannon. Ah, mm-hmm. right. that makes sense. Yeah, it's Tracy Letts, so it's yeah. you know it's yeah. of that yeah. that vein. Uh-huh. But I will say where I come down on on L, I really enjoyed it, and I'm gonna have to think about it. But I think we neuter a lot of stuff. Um, just to please everybody, yeah. And so the whole idea of sorry, this is for grownups mm-hmm. has kind of blurred, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so I like the idea of just an adult film that's not an adult film. Yeah, I'm doing yeah, air yeah. quotes to the yeah. listeners' home. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of you know an adult comedy, an adult drama. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is both. Yeah, I I will I can always be, I'm sure. always mm-hmm. on on that on the side of a movie like that. Yeah. Oh, indeed. I think you know, as a last kernel, though, I think it's really funny that this movie has an R here. Mm. Understandably, yeah. Oh, yeah. Showgirls is NC seventeen. Yeah, but I, the funniest thing is, I believe in France, this is a twelve. Really? Whoa. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, really interesting. <laughs> I, I can see why for America, content-wise, are no question, right? Mm-hmm, but yeah. when you really think about like what unfolds in the movie, it's never terribly graphic. We get that one. Actually, that fantasy sequence is probably the most graphic it it ultimately gets. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's thematic material. Yes, that's what I think I mean, it is too. There's an intensity, and also there is yes. some graphic nudity that yes. you know oh, that's the true. MPA well, it does to our unwillingness to engage with this yeah, type of does. material. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, it, actually, to to just wrap up thoughts on the film, Dan, I'm I'm curious. Uh, why would you say that at least right now this is your favorite movie this year? Like, what is it about this film that uh, I guess attracts you to it so much? Well, I mean, favorite's a tough word to put to something like this, just yes. because it's the kind of movie where if someone reads a synopsis, they can get the wrong idea about totally. the um. About you, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah we, for you to say, "Hey, this was my favorite movie this year," and then they just read the logline on IMDb. They're like, what? Oh, "A rape revenge yeah, fantasy what? movie, sure." Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think for me, it's just that it's again and again. This for me has not been a particularly great year. Mm-hmm. I found mm-hmm. myself giving a lot of movies two, two and a half stars mm-hmm. on my letterboxed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, been a big three-star year for me, for sure. Yeah, there have been some threes for me. I think I've of the 46 I've seen, I think there's only about 19 movies that... I mean, actually, no, there's only about 17 movies of those that I believe I've given positive ratings to. Mm-hmm. I think for me with this movie, it's just that it's a movie that goes out on a high wire and it never looks down. Yeah. It has a, a bold sense to want to go in the places that movies... Most movies don't go, and I'm not trying to endorse this just because you know, oh, this is the next step, or it's for shock value reasons. Yeah, I think it is. First of all, it is very entertaining. Uh-huh. It is very funny. Uh-huh. It is forcing the audience to really consider subject matter that is very uncomfortable for a lot of us, but 
we have to come to terms with it because to, it you, is it is you know a basic human sort of element. And, and I'm not quite, talking about rape. I'm talking no, yeah. a lot about the the way people can react to these sort of traumatic mm. effects. Are you saying yeah. it's a very basic instinct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very, oh, very clever, clever, clever. <laughs> so you mean more like the, the just sort of the psychological reactions mm-hmm. uh, that are depicted here? That, but also, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't lie, I can't tell a lie. I just enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, I yeah. Think it's just an incredibly entertaining movie. It's mm-hmm. great seeing Verhoeven back in all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the judge, the value of a movie, honestly, cannot be determined upon release. We're gonna have to I wait agree years down to see if L's gonna hold up. Yeah. I think it. I think it has the potential to hold up. Yeah. For most sure, but I can say within the moment. This is just the movie that has really stuck out from the crowd, and it yeah. just, it does its own thing. Yeah. And it, ha- it, you know, it takes no hostages and makes no apologies. When was Toronto? When did you see this first? How long ago was that? Um, three months. Okay. About, uh, yeah, just about three months. So this is just one of those of movies that has continued to like bubble and rise above the others in your in your thought process. Yep. I mean, I loved it at Toronto. Yeah, I uh, it's. But I wanted to let it sit to see how it would, you know, before I, because I don't like to make declarative statements too much or like, you know, the uh, superlative statements like, you know, oh, best movie of the decade, best, Mm. best comedy playing this week. All the time. (laughs) That's my favorite thing to do. Uh Uh, Yeah. Again, different strokes for different. I think it's just for me, it's just, uh, I, you know, I don't like to mislead uh, people. I mean, you, I mean, I've, I've heard you've been able to like, you know, you do a great job though in praising like movies, like saying, oh, this is like, you know, the best comedy out there. Part of it is because you can really sell people on movies much oh, better than you. I can. <laughs> I, I'm. I just I'm, don't. I can't find it in my heart to hate things. And I nine mm-hmm. times out of ten, I know exactly what I'm sitting down for. Mm-hmm. So there's no room for me to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that's really what it comes down to. I can be a bit eggheaded, admittedly, <laughs> and maybe a little coldly intellectual. I think that's the sometimes. second time someone's used egghead on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and previously, it was Pete Steele referring to one of the characters in Attack oh, yeah. the Block as an egghead. <laughs> like, egghead over here gets his head. <laughs> well, I think we should get into some lists. I do too. Um, I, I really appreciate your thoughts on that, Dan. That uh, that really, uh, I I kind of knew going into this. I was like, there, I I'm not going to be able to talk about this movie unless Dan Centelli oh, is yeah. there to like mm-hmm. help me unpack what it I was. I was I saw. afraid that it was going to be just the two of us, and we would just get like hammy over it. So like, what are we talking me, about? Dan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been right before. <laughs> <laughs> also, it might be interesting to know for the listeners that we have uh, actually. I have never personally uh, met you guys in person. This is our first. Oh, yeah. Today. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. our first so, in-person yeah. meet. We yeah. literally had to text Dan as we were entering the movie theater. Dan, we're here. <laughs> we don't know what you look like. <laughs> Make yourself known. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I All just right. noticed we have the exact same phone and case going on right now. Oh, oh look at that! Just two Dan's uh, we're gonna cheers pod. Them. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, we we Dan S's. Yeah. So what we decided to do for a list here, since this sort of in some way marks a return for Verhoeven. Yes. Uh, we wanted gap. to talk about uh, the the idea started as director returns. Yes. And then within minutes, it turned into any sort of comeback or return from yeah, a hiatus. the film industry, directors, writers, exactly. actors, uh, someone. I guess we could go. I sort of went with the idea that these are comebacks for people that maybe they had disappeared for one reason or another, whether it be just a movie performed so poorly we didn't see them for a while, whatever it was, yeah. mm-hmm. some sort of return to form for someone in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I must say, in a, a, before we get into these lists, yeah. I, I, mine is admittedly incomplete, but hopefully I'll be able to 
do a few, we didn't give, give a Dan the heads hand. up he deserved yeah. on this mine's, one. Mine's a no little worries. all over the place yeah. anyway. I didn't Minus quite two. get a full It'll be thing fun here. now. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was a really fun one to sort of actually look at and sort of try and parse out like, well, who fits this criteria? And what is my criteria? Mm-hmm. And that whole thing. And I don't even know. I This is another one where I, I did not put these in any particular order because I don't know how to order something like this. These are just selections more than they are a top five or anything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I get, which I guess I can start if, uh, yeah, if somebody just else is dying. We'll just, we'll just kind of throw them out as we go. So yeah, here we got to kind of move through this one quick. I think we're probably hitting. I think uh, so too. Hitting the two we're hitting the mark, mark here. Yeah. So yeah. let's. Uh, yeah, we're right at about two hours. So let's let's try to bring this one in for a close. I'll start with uh, this. Was uh, one that came to mind. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan returned with The Force Awakens last year. Lawrence mm. Kasdan had not. So I, I, I wrote this down. He he does a a uh, like a right in a row for big movies from 1980 to 1983. He writes Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of the Jedi, and The Big Chill. Mm-hmm. He has a couple other ones throughout his career in there, but then really stops uh, selling scripts. I'm sure he didn't stop writing, but selling scripts. Did he do Dreamcatcher? Dreamcatcher yeah. yep, yep. is the is the, I think the most recent produced screenplay other than The Force Awakens dream, on his list. The movie in which, if I remember correctly, Timothy Oliphant uses a f- gun as a phone. Yes, if I remember correctly. That is 100 yeah. really? percent accurate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, so Lawrence Kasdan returns with The Force Awakens, which I quite liked. Uh, we're going to see him again with uh, that Han Solo spinoff that they're going to do. He's writing that with his son. Uh, I really liked Force Awakens, and for a screenwriter who truly wrote some of at least the biggest movies that came out in our lifetime, if if not some of the best, uh, pretty interesting. I you know He had to go back to the well, actually, and, yeah. and I thought, you know, produce something pretty great uh, in doing so. Mm-hmm. All right, so this one, uh, when you're a Woody Allen fan, you make peace with the fact that... He raped a kid. That twice, twice a year, <laughs> allegedly, that <laughs> twice a year you will get a movie and one will be bad and one will be great. Yeah. Um, usually. Yeah. But there was a little period here that uh, he, he did Sweet and Low Down in 1999, which, yeah. which I enjoyed if you can get past the fact that... that Sean Penn is clearly not playing that guitar. <laughs> um, so then he did. It's it's like the worst offender of that ever. But I do enjoy the movie. Um, Small time crooks in two thousand. Oh yeah, like, I'm I'm a Woody Allen fan, so yeah. like I do love these all in a certain way. But they were he became a joke. These are lower. Curse points. of the Jade Scorpion yeah. in two thousand one. Uh-huh. Hollywood ending in two thousand two. Uh-huh. Anything else in two thousand three. Uh-huh. Melinda and Linda. Melinda in two thousand four. And then suddenly Match Point. Yo, yeah. he was a force love to be reckoned with in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. In the way that he can come back, he's kind of bulletproof. Yeah, um, that would that marked to me the most substantial comeback for him in terms of of uh, critical review. I oh, would yeah. totally agree with yeah. that, especially because it was on maybe his longest string of don't like that, don't like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. don't mm-hmm. like that. You know, it, it was like in the '90s when those allegations came out, there was a pushback against him. Yeah, but he just kept throwing like Hannah and her sisters, yeah. deconstructing yeah. Harry, like yeah. all this good shit. That nobody wanted to touch him, and then when that started to happen, everyone's like, "Well, we can. It's not. Maybe he's a creep." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, match point. You know, yep. he put the bulletproof vest back on. I'm admittedly a Woody Allen skeptic, and even I'll say that Match Point is a really terrific movie. And I think it is. It amazes me that you know he's actually because it's actually kind of a reworking of my one of my two favorite Woody Allen films, Crimes, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Crimes and Misdemeanors. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's if yeah, because for me, I mean. They're only like really honestly a couple that I really love, but yeah, match points up there with crimes and misdemeanors and Hannah and her sisters. Mm-hmm. Those are mm-hmm. just fabulous. So yeah, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you hit us with one, Dan? What do you got? Well, uh, I'll start with one that is maybe a little. Cl- um, 
I'll start, go back to the 1950s with this one. I'm going to go Henri-Georges Clouseau with The Wages of Fear. Mm. Um, mm. Wages of Fear, which is best known uh, to some, you know, if, you, if you're a cinephile or a Criterion enthusiast, you'll know this movie. Right. Uh, other Americans and uh, cinephiles might know this as the movie that Friedkin remade as Sorcerer, which I know right. is a huge He, he denied uh, remaking, though. Yeah. He, no, he, he said it's an adaptation it of, the of the book. book. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's an adaptation of the... Um, uh, the book by oh, I can't remember what his name is now, but um, but yeah, Henri. Question is someone who's not seen Sorcerer, uh, and I would very much like to. I've heard great things. Should I see Wages of Fear and then see Sorcerer? Is there any sort of necessity there? Would it I'll be it more interesting? Way. I think Sorcerer is perfect, and I've never seen Wages of okay. Fear. I would like to see it. I hear it's the superior movie. Yeah, and um, but I, I mean, I would just say see both. Yeah, in whatever yeah. order. I'd yeah. say see both. I actually think Sorcerer is the superior film. Mm. I think that I, I and I do love The Wages of Fear. Mm-hmm. I think Sorcerer has the better ending though. Okay. And um and well, I won't give it away, but, yeah. uh, but Wages yeah, of Fear doesn't have Roy Scheider. Are they that similar <laughs> by the way as well? Is it, are they actually like as far as the story that's being told fairly Sorcerer has like, will I know I'm watching a remake of that movie, essentially? You, you will. Yeah. Sorcerer has a, a much more post-Watergate vibe to okay. it. It also does uh, give expository backstories for the uh, the four main protagonists, which kind of does help, because Sorcerer is more about, seems to be about putting these first-world criminals in a third-world country, uh-huh. and a lot of that sort of backstory is jettisoned in Wages of Fear, uh, just for more so in their, uh, for narrative economy. Uh, but this the book's like that, if it has... I feel like the book is the way it's broken into yeah. like the four pieces, and then you have like the, the vignettes at the beginning, I feel like that's mm-hmm. a book thing. I've read the book before. The book is actually more uh, similar to the... Um, to the to to the fifty three version by really? Clouseau, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, Clouseau, uh, he terrific filmmaker, mm-hmm. much underrated. Unfortunately, does not. Uh, well, his reputation was sort of tarnished by a lot of the new wave uh, filmmakers like Godard and Truffaut, who sort of dismissed a lot of the French classical directors, with mm-hmm. the exception of like Jean Renoir and a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he had ran into a lot of trouble in the forties when he made a movie called Le Corbeau. Uh, a lot of which was about, you know, uh, f- did not have a very, uh, let's just say it did not have a very uh, tasteful portrait of the French in uh, during the Nazi occupied, um, mm. kind of during the occupation of France. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he, so, and he had been kind of down his luck. Uh, I believe he was not allowed to make movies for a while. He had made a movie called Manon in 49, a movie called Miquette, both of which I still need to see, but. So he was like blacklisted fear. at some point, basically? Sort of blacklisted. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, I, I don't know the, all the nitty-gritty, but what I do know is Wages of Fear, he came back with an absolute vengeance, made what is a very important movie in terms of the development of the modern action film template. Uh. Uh, won the Cannes Film Festival, I believe, the year, and uh. basically made a movie that, you know, forever was, uh, you know, I mean, most of modern action movies owe a debt to this in some way or another. The Wild Bunch uh, references Wages of Fear heavily. Uh I mean, right down to the fact that the opening shot of The Wild Bunch is a variation on the opening shot of Wages of Fear. Um, But yeah, that's the Wages of Fear is definitely one. And of course, you know, he would have a one-two punch because his next film, uh, which is even better than Wages of Fear, is the great thriller Diabolique, which Uh. out Hitchcock's Hitchcock. 
I've mm-hmm. never seen it. Uh, you just put two more movies on my to-watch list, sir. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Do it up. Uh, I'm going to go with three maybe... more, because you got to get Sorcerer in there. Too. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was already on the list. That's uh, Okay. Uh, so this one is uh, maybe a bit of a stretch, uh, because it's uh, it, I'm sort of jumping mediums here. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Gone Baby Gone for mm. director Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. Because leading up to... So that movie came out in 2007, I think. And leading up to that, he was in the following string of films, back-to-back, Gigli, Paycheck, Jersey Girl, Surviving Christmas, Smoking Aces. And the, Reindeer Games. The dude was Whoa, on like yeah, a Little real... Wolfgang Peterson, is that who did that? John Frankenheimer. John Frankenheimer, yeah. massive. <laughs> he was really on like a basically a downward spiral. Like if you were to just look at his career choices, you know? Uh, and then he directed what I still consider to be like a pretty great film of that decade. Uh, Gone Baby Gone is, is I think, really exceptional, especially for a first-time filmmaker. Yeah, and uh, he became uh, an Oscar winner and a Batman. Yeah, uh, and, you know, he... So if we're talking about Return to Forms, this is a guy who wrote what I think is still a pretty great movie as well, uh, Good Will Hunting, mm-hmm. then made a series of career choices that... I don't think anybody could argue we're uh, intelligent in any way, mm-hmm. uh, only to return to form as like a really great filmmaker with Gone Baby Gone. I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of an interesting resurgence of someone's career that never really died as much as just we all sort of started to think of him as a joke. Mm-hmm. Well, we, pigeon- we pigeonholed yeah. him into being the action hunk. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, well, and uh, <clears throat> the other thing, you have to say, he did kind of also kind of resurge uh, in addition to the directing career. I mean, of course, uh, did you mention Gone Girl as well? I have not. Yeah. And yeah, that, I mean, Gone Girl did sort of like, uh, I mean, that movie did. I would say for his acting career. Yeah, for, for his acting sure. career, it definitely did give some, you know, validity yeah. to, you know, because a lot of people just thought of him as this, you know, piece of cardboard. More well, or less. Yeah, he's yeah. a good actor. I, yeah. I think Dan and I would not disagree on this. Uh, the Accountant was not a good movie. But he was very good in it. Like I think that dude That's has such made an a, interesting character. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's made a real good argument for himself. I think as an actor, and I, I've actually always been a defender of his. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a chasing Amy fan going way back, and I think he, uh, despite that movie having bizarre uh, politics, is uh, he is very good in it. I think, and to well, me, did, from um, that moment on, always showed like real promise as a dramatic actor. Back in the day, South Park did an episode where they had these two people who had butts for heads <laughs> and they would talk like that and their child was Ben Affleck. <laughs> and then much, much later after Argo came out, they did an episode where uh, they, they basically apologized to Ben Affleck and oh. like Butters does the final speech where yeah. he's like talking about Ben Affleck's like, you know, Argo's a good movie <laughs> and you know, he's a regular guy. He's married to Jennifer Garner. He's got kids and yeah. you know, Argo's a good movie. Like, <laughs> they they apologize and South Park don't apologize. Yeah, they yeah. apologize to Ben Affleck. That's all I need. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What do you got, Dan? Uh, all right, um, this one I, I, I put in there just because I I, uh, I really love this actor and his hiatus turned out to be a calculated prank. Mm, right. And I'm referring, of course, to Joaquin Phoenix, uh-huh. who did the wonderful uh, James Gray movie, Two Lovers. Right. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of James Gray when it comes down to it. And then took time off yep. to make if I'm I remember Still Here. Right, that film almost didn't do well because he used the promotional he tour downfall. he was supposed to be on to do, like, I'm, I'm gonna be a rapper. crazy. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and it turned out to be him and Casey Affleck <laughs> pulling a prank. Yeah. But the question was, can he recover from this right. prank? And then he makes The Master. I was going to say, now says, read yes. the list of movies you know? he's made since then. And, and yeah, he's crushing it. Yeah. And so from a guy who went from being like pretty mainstream and doing things like Signs, but yep. being a better actor than, than much of his material, mm-hmm. really could have shot himself in the foot and then ended up, you know, everyone comes back and goes, oh, now you're, yeah. you're now PTA's darling. Right. You are legitimately good. He got a Woody Allen movie in there. Yeah. He's, you know, he's doing it. Yeah. 
Well, that's so a Joaquin great Phoenix, JP. Yeah. Very, very good in The Immigrant, too, which is yes, unfortunately... another James Gray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that movie. That's that an good. excellent movie. That I did not see that. Might have I think that's on Netflix, actually. Mm. I would watch that. I recommend. I think it was my favorite movie of the year. It came out yeah. back in 2014. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santelli, give All us another. Righty. My next one, we're going to go to actors here for a moment. Actually, you know, since we were talking about Sorcerer, I will bring this one up, then because oh. next one is a double... I'm going to do William Friedkin and Ashley Judd for Bug. Oh, Bug, yeah. Oh, yep. you know, I've never seen that, and I have heard really interesting it's things another about Tracy that. Letts, another one where Michael Shannon's playing the role right. that he, he helped originate. Yeah. Bug is the kind of wildly ambitious uh, drama that if it can't achieve greatness, it, almost, it, it, it at least almost gets there, is how yeah, I would yeah. describe it. It is a fantastic, claustrophobic um, uh, yeah, adaptation of a of a one of uh, I think it's a it stage was, play. Isn't it was it? a stage. Yeah, it was one of Letts's early plays. I think it was mm. his third, if I remember correctly. I would know. Um, but it's a um, play that I don't think should translate well, or or really needs to translate to the screen. But they did it. Mm-hmm. Well, part of that is freaking really understands how to exploit closed in spaces, mm-hmm. and he's been able to do that for a lot of his career. Just think of like. All the scenes in uh, Regan's room and The Exorcist. The only thing mm. that I even le- I mean, I'm I know I'm alone in this opinion, but I did not like the French Connection really when I watched mm. it. The best thing in that movie is that tight and closed foot chase ac- on the subway. Uh, on the subway, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. French Connection, weirdly enough, is one in which the reputation has gone down. I, I actually do love the movie. Mm-hmm. My favorite scene that actually does kind of have that enclosed quality is the scene in the warehouse when they take the car apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now I will say, Friedkin never really went away he'd still been plugging away but you know he had been making a lot of movies like jade mm, uh right. the guardian um rules of engagement uh-huh. which, which isn't bad yeah um, yeah and i i do remember really liking the hunted when i saw it with tommy lee jones and oh, Del fuck. Toro. he made that movie he did make that movie and the i Hunted has a that. weird thing in it that i do i do enjoy mm-hmm. that movie but there's a weird thing where they're like where they, they dispatched Tommy Lee Jones to take down Benicio Del Toro. And he's like, we don't have any time. And they're like, all of our weapons are at your disposal. He's like, hang on, I'm going to carve a knife out of a rock. <laughs> <laughs> and he just starts chiseling away. You're like, I thought time was of the... <laughs> hang on, your, your knives won't do. I need a rock knife because I'm... I'm I'm Tommy Jones, <laughs> but but and also for Ashley Judd, I will say uh, before giving a little you know final thing to Friedkin. I mean Ashley Judd, it reminds you like what her early performances like Ruby in Paradise, yeah, like the the talent that she really does have. Up. Oh, I did as well. I mean, yeah. I think any I think any sensible kid uh, <laughs> with a, with heteronormative yes, yes. leanings would definitely yeah. have, have a crush on Ashley Judd. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, but yeah, she kind of just got lost in a lot of those late '90s thrillers. Like like Double Jeopardy. Um, yeah, right. Kiss the, uh, the Kiss the Girls yep, with yep, the yep. absolute worst CGI car crash you'll ever see <laughs> in your life. Um, but, you know, I mean, she really pulled together. She's absolutely phenomenal in that movie. Shannon, as always, is yeah, terrific. Yeah, he's in a it. really terrific actor. And with Friedkin, you know, it just reminds you, you know, it reminds you that, you know, this is that this man, you know, who made, you know, great movies like Sorcerer. Uh, the much underrated cruising to live and die in L.A., uh, or, or even like some of the like ones that some people don't know, like Rampage. Uh, uh-huh. The fact that you know this this sadly marginalized American filmmaker, you know, he's not going to give up, and he just fires on all cylinders yeah. and bounces back of that. And of I got to see that. It's good, and of course, Killer Joe is his next one. So right. he had the one-two punch. Yeah, too he with that. continued. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So Garrett? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So here's an, I, I had to make some interesting cases here, I would say, to, to meet criteria. Uh, this is a filmmaker who has only made three movies. So it's hard to say that there was a gap as much as one that he created himself by not making that many movies over his career. Uh, but in only making three movies, I want to talk about Jonathan Glazer and Under the Skin mm. uh, because he made... Um, Birth. Right, but what was the one he made before Birth? Sexy, Sexy Beast. Beast. Sexy Beast, which is really fantastic and was a heralded movie when it came out. And then Birth was a movie that no one talked about or has heard of. I haven't seen it. I, that's the only I haven't either, seen actually. Uh, I just, as far as reception goes, it's like you've you've got this great film that was like his breakout first film, as far as I understand it, Sexy Beast, and it's heralded and talked Which about. Sexy and, Beast in of itself sort of marked a bit of a return for um, uh, Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley, mm-hmm. yes. Because, you know, he was, oh, he's our Gandhi, he's our yep, guy, he's yep. our prestige guy, and suddenly he was like, oh, no, he's actually he's a tremendous a, actor. He's just a tremendous he character. He can really actor. chew up yeah. the scenery. Uh, and uh, But then you get Birth, where it's like, I haven't seen it, and I would love to, because I like his other two movies so much. But that movie went like unseen, as far as I know. Mm. You know, it's like I don't know anybody that's seen Birth. I need to revisit that movie. Yeah. I saw it years ago. I, I was kind of in the middle on it, but yeah. I, it was before I'd seen it. Uh, before Under the Skin came out, yeah. um, so it's it's ripe for revisit. I can't yeah. say hither or thither, but I was I was I was uh, ambivalent about it when I was seventeen, uh-huh. which yeah. is you know that, I think that is when mm-hmm. that came out. That feels right. Uh, I would have been. Th- 12 when that came out that was 2002 but uh, i saw i caught up with oh, it oh I see, I see yeah mm-hmm. uh yeah uh it um and then under the skin i thought was just fantastic uh, oh that yeah. movie more than anything in recent years has stuck with me most me and, too like, sound cues in yep. other movies will just set off a memory of that and i get unsettled yep mm-hmm. that's that's a i i remember seeing that and being like really floored by it but I had no idea it would be the movie that, that would stick with me most. Yeah, it totally. It really has. Uh, yeah, a lot of sense memory of that. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to bring uh, Under the Skin up as sort of a return for a director who has not done a lot anyway, but uh, certainly kind of fell off the radar almost immediately with his second film and then it came a, immediately back on the radar with his third. It was a passion project, though. I think it took a, like years to get the financing right. for that one, so yeah. he mm-hmm. just didn't concede to Right, anyone. he might have just been yeah. plugging away the whole time to get, to get that made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna burn through two just in Go, the in the because so, this time. one I don't have much to say yeah. about because it's it's older. We all know where we stand. We on can this, all but burn through. Our there final was a seven two. year mm-hmm. gap between The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. Yes, and Full Metal Jacket. Um, I I actually really love that movie. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people get wishy washy with it. I I really think they he nails he nails that movie. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's good stuff. But um, my, my number two is just uh we saw it just happen this year uh, Pee-wee's big holiday. Ah, yeah. That was a fucking comeback if yeah. there ever was one. Yeah. I didn't even uh, think about that. Pee-wee was always a piece of of who I am. Yeah. And um, gosh, did I love that. Yeah, and that movie just made a strong case for like of all the things yeah. to still be funny and to still be viable and to still work in the face of some of the strangest reasons for being on hiatus, Pee-wee's big holiday like bucked all of the, it, it totally. jumped every hurdle that you could put in front of it. I agree. Short of Rubens being killed, yeah, it's, yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So, yeah, because I actually that, that might he might be the argument for how CGI could never truly replace actors. Yeah, I don't think you could do a CGI version of Paul Rubens that would match Paul Rubens. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean he's an cr- incredibly animated presence. Yeah. So yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I will burn through two as well. Hit two me. actors before we get to the last one. Okay, so we're gonna go back to the seventies here. I'm going to do the double uh, bill of Robert Mitchum and mm. Friends of Eddie Coyle 
and Marlon Brando, not in The Godfather, but I'm going to say Return to the Method Acting Form in Last Tango in Paris. Ooh, ah, cool. Fascinating. Um, now, of course, with Mitchum, Mitchum had, again, not gone away. He'd done Ryan's Daughters mm-hmm. and had been in Hawks' El Dorado. He'd been acting on, you know, here and there and, and doing very fine work. But Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a Peter Yates film adapted from a George V. Higgins crime novel. Uh, v. Higgins provided the source material for killing them softly a couple mm. years ago. Yes, oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Um, he, you know, it ju- it's just a reminder of why Mitchum is maybe one of the two or three greatest movie actors out mm-hmm. there. It's got that... I only recently went through the Cape Fears. Oh, yes, yeah. And uh, it was great. Yep. It was a great experience. Is, yeah, well, I mean, his Cape Fear character, I mean, that's like proto-sexual predator. I mm. mean, it's just in, insane how far he goes with it. But, you know, Coyle, it reminds you... And, and also, like, you know, he had... Some other ones like the Yakuza he did after that, mm. and um, oh, I can't remember what the other one was, but anyway, you know, Coyle reminded you, you know, just how great Mitchum when he's you know firing in all cylinders again, like in Night of the Hunter, mm-hmm. or uh, even if you want to go all the way back to an early film of his, like Out of the Past, which you know is a film noir from 1947, you could look at Eddie Coyle as almost like the logical, you know end point for that kind of noir character he played back when he was young he's this you know he plays this boston guy who essentially sells out his friends Mm -hmm. and rats out on them and you know he's alcoholic he's losing money but no johnny depp played him in a movie called black mass last year (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) yep uh and i still have yet to see black mass Uh, i've heard mixed things about it yeah i think we would stand right there in the mix Mm -hmm. but um but yeah eddie coyle it's terrific it is a unheralded gem and mitchum is just terrific and if you want to and also it's got a great Peter Boyle supporting performance. Ah, I love Peter Boyle. Uh, and at least for Brando, there really isn't much to talk about. Uh, but I will say that I deeply defend his work in Last Tango because I think it is more than just him mumbling about in method actor form. Yeah, because yeah. Godfather, yes, he had won the Oscar for yeah, Godfather, yeah. but he wasn't at the center of that movie. He right. was the central force that all the action mm-hmm. around him. Yeah, yeah. And we focused all the action around the Godfather. Mm-hmm. With Last Tango in Paris, you remind it reminds you of the stuff like on the waterfront, streetcar mm-hmm. named Desire. Why he was, you know, at one time the most highly truly the actor. great, yeah. And I mean, also you get to see, you know, him. You know, um, one thing you never see in most male actors is a sense of vulnerability. I mean, if either of you have seen this movie, there is a five minute scene where he delivers a monologue about growing up on a farm and it's uh it's basically him incorporating autobiography into the role Mm. now not that that's like a a brave thing or anything but it's it's interesting how he can create concrete parallels uh of it of his take concrete parallel uh concrete memories from his own uh uh childhood basically as actors would call it, emotional recall, literalizing that and just grafting them onto the character and having it just be organic and not Mm -hmm. feeling forced at all. That's interesting. Yep. Brando, Last Tango in Paris, Mitchum, Eddie Coyle. Nice. Mm -hmm. You just keep adding movies to my list, sir. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, I'll do two last ones here. Uh, Both uh, arguments that need to be made. Uh, So I'm going to go with a scream for Drew Barrymore. Uh, because if you look at her career, she was another, we, we talked about this, uh, before we started recording, uh, uh, with Jason Bateman, she was another young actor that sort of, um, lost a few years of her career to, uh, 
poor life choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we could say it that way. Uh, so she starts, you know, I mean, she's a kid, but she starts E.T. Firestarter, 82, 84. She has a ton of TV in there. She's in uh, Poison Ivy in 92. Cat's uh, Eye. She's in, but that's where we start to <laughs> get into this weird stuff. Yeah, Cat's Eye. But, she, but this is where it starts to get weird. She's in Batman Forever. She plays like a no-name character, like a side character. Mm-hmm. She was uh, one of, she was the, the, the lighter, uh, Two-Face has two mistresses. Yes. And there was the goth one and the angelic one. Yes. She was the angelic she, one. Exactly. Yes. And so she's like this. She's straight up like a like, like a, a damsel for a villain in a in a big movie, you know. Uh, but uh, then, nineteen ninety six, she has this small role in Scream, uh, where we basically advertise the movie as a Drew Barrymore movie, mm-hmm. uh, kill her off immediately, uh, and sort of advertised as like she's back, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and well, it turns she's out, on the poster, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it turns out she's not back; like she's dead in five minutes. But for some reason, our visceral reaction as an audience to She's Back and us being so elated at that idea, suddenly we have a career of Wedding Singer, Never Been Kissed, Home Fries, Charlie's Angels. All these things come out one after another after. following Scream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ever After is right in there. Yeah, it's, so her career like really takes off following Scream. It's interesting mm. to maybe think about it in that light that somehow this trick they play on us to say, She's Back! Mm-hmm. actually works you know and we go like mm-hmm. oh she is back oh she's not back well we wanted her back can we have more please yeah. bring her back <laughs> yeah. uh and then uh, uh so this one is is uh, a case of uh as my final one not so much disappearing as uh, being able to turn the tide on the perception of you in your career uh joseph gordon levitt with brick in 2005 mm. Because this I really dude thought you were gonna go with Tom Cruise. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, Which now I really wish I had on my list. Yeah, totally. Because not... <laughs> that actually makes sense. He, you know, Family Ties, Dark Shadows, Quantum Leap. He starts as a child actor, just really small roles on TV shows. Obviously, eventually gets to. I mean, by the way, he was in Beethoven, the first Beethoven. He's one of the kids. Angels in the outfield. Angels in the outfield. That's on my list here. He's got all these things where it's like none of this stuff rings as like the makings of a great young actor. He was you know? the dude from Third Rock from that's, the Sun for it, me for the longest time. That's and what, I didn't even like mm-hmm. that. And show. that's the thing he had to break. Yeah. That is the thing that Brick breaks of him. Because even in there, yeah, right? He was like, ice skate to the face, first victim in Halloween H two O. I was just gonna say, yeah. Halloween, <laughs> while he's on uh, 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 Third Rock, he gets Halloween H two O. He gets uh, um, uh, he he ends up being in Roseanne at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ten Things I Hate About You is a movie he makes while he's on Third Rock. He is just cute kid that can say cute things and make a cute face. Yeah. That's what he does for 20 years. Now he's and made a business Brick is it. the thing that... <laughs> well, Brick is the thing, though, that breaks him of the yeah. childhood persona. It's the gear and, shift. And, yeah, puts mm-hmm. him into adulthood. And really, I mean... And he's a tremendous actor. Straight oh, yeah. from yeah. Brick onward, he goes forward into becoming like a tremendous, still young, but adult actor. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and like... A, and like an, like in all forms of entertainment, yes. kind of thing. Uh, one of my honorable mentions in the, in a similar uh, uh, rise is Channing Tatum. Channing mm. Tatum goes from Step Up movies and oh, Dear yeah. Johns and like all of these things that are just sort of, you know, I, I think now people are starting to reflect on some of them as, oh, look at the promise this man showed. It's but at the time well, that is not how we viewed yeah. those movies. Yeah, he yeah. seemed like just a hunk. Yeah, I, I read an interview with him once where he said he was like, that was my biggest fear was that. I'm going to just be the hunk, yep. and then it's done for me. Yep. It's like, which is great, you know. I get to ride the not not everyone gets to ride the train, 
but then you know he suddenly shows oh shit he's so funny well and mm-hmm. it's oh, funnily enough know, it's a one-two punch of magic mike and 21 jump street that i think yeah. really jettison him out of that just and a G. hunk. G. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but i mean they jettison him out of just a hunk by literally playing on his hunk persona both oh, of yeah. those movies use his hunk persona to their advantage to oh, he reveal gets the joke, more yeah. layers of him. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's amazing when you look at him, and, and particularly Magic Mike. Yeah. I mean, which is, you know, a much better movie than I think its reputation would lead one to believe. Certainly. I mean, it, it's amazing that this is the same actor who was in She... You know, not to disparage a movie, but if you look at him in She's the Man, for instance... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is... Literally the hunk, yes, yes. and there yeah. is not much else There's to it. Nothing but, else I going mean, on and, there. But you know, he's proven himself to be, you know, a very, very talented uh, actor. Yes, for certain. Mm-hmm. Like definitely one of our our great entertainers right now. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Hail Caesar! Yeah. When he does that tap dance, oh. I mean, that is the that is I the, love that the sequence. point. That's that's what I compare. That's this year's Oscar Isaac robot dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anything that I see that it requires, you know, showmanship of that yeah. level is going to have to be compared. Held up next to that yardstick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that'll, that'll that'll do it for my list. You guys want to hit us with your number? Yeah. Ones? Um, this one just because this is a filmmaker that I am ter- terribly fond of. Um, so his last, like, like the, the marking the downfall was Existence for uh, ah, David Cronenberg in '99. Yeah. And then he did Spider in 2002, which right. I, I thought was wonderful, but it didn't quite catch. Like, it did the Ritz circuit. Right. But then A History of Violence, right. which I think is just a masterpiece, um, really brought his name back. It mm-hmm. got um, William Hurt an Oscar nomination. Yep. It, it was just a, a great confluence of material And to, doesn't he follow it up with Eastern Promises? Eastern Promises, um, A Dangerous Method. Right. He, just, he suddenly started being able to make... He was able to do what... John Carpenter kind of failed to do with the Ward, right? And just mm-hmm. kind of come back and still keep in his niche of mm-hmm. being a genre filmmaker, but you know, not necessarily being this weird like biosexual tech horror kind of thing <laughs> right. that he did. And so he was able to kind of make a second career out of it. Yeah. He didn't have to jump into music the way John Carpenter, right? Did. Right. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, it's a great pick. Cronenberg is, is yeah. just he's the tits. He's <laughs> <There's> just no <laughs> one other of the greats. Yeah, he's the best. History of Violence is like. Rewatch that. Then yeah. read the comic book it's based yeah. on and see how well it was adapted to something so much more thematically rich. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Cool. No, I, Phenomenal. I, I, History Violence, actually, I think, is still my favorite Cronenberg of the past 15 years. I would, so. I would agree. I, I mean, my all time favorites are still um, the Flying Dead Ringers, mm-hmm. uh, with honorable mention, most certainly the Videodrome. Mm-hmm. But uh, but now, yeah, History of Violence, it's it also just shows like. I'm a how, Brood fan, too. Oh, the Brood's <laughs> very, very Brood is so weird. <laughs> it's such yeah. a weird movie. It is it is a movie made by a man who's very angry, and mm-hmm. at least he got it out yeah, yeah. that way. But, uh, well, my uh, number one, I'll say one of my honorable mentions, uh, she actually was going to be my number one, um, although uh, I think I'm actually, you know what, directors, I'll, I'll do a male and female duo yeah, for number it. one yeah. here. Uh, the female first, I'll do Liliana Cavani, okay. uh, who is an Italian filmmaker who's probably best known for a film, or most notoriously known for a film called The Night Porter from 1974, uh, which that is... sounds familiar. It's a film of Charlotte Rampling and Dirk Bogard about how years after the Holocaust, a former SS officer is working as a, as a concierge at a uh, glitzy uh, hotel, and in walks one day one of his former prisoners. Whoa. And uh, it is not, it, 
well, if that wasn't dicey enough, it's the fact that they had a sexual relationship or oh. a kind of sexual relationship when they were uh, based on pain, essentially. Mm-hmm. The movie uh, famously was given a one-star review by Ebert, who really f- took great offense to it using uh, Holocaust material for basically kind of like a post uh Last Tango, kind of like a the a female critique of Last Tango. Mm-hmm. Um, then she kind of did. Uh, she, I mean, and she's she's a very talented Italian director in her own right. But she did a lot of stuff that kind of like got her off the level of international acclaim, mm-hmm. like very well known. I think like some of her stuff, like a '80s film she did called Francesco, never got released here. Mm. Uh, and then she did um, uh, this uh, this romance. Uh, which I have never seen in 1993, called um, Dove Siete Lo Sono Chi, uh, which didn't... Love the pronunciation. Didn't even make mm-hmm. it outside of Italy. However, 10 years later, 2002, makes a little film called Ripley's Game oh. with John Malkovich. I've never seen any of the yeah. uh, Mr. Ripley's. I, I think Ripley's Game... Alongside uh, the American Friend is the best of all those. Uh, I do have a lot of respect for both Purple Noon, and uh, I do enjoy the talented Mr. Ripley. I liked even that movie when I goofy. saw it, but I saw it when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Ripley's Game is much harder. It's an adaptation of the third of uh, Patricia Highsmith's uh, Ripley's uh, novels. It was actually previously made as the American Friend mm. uh, by Vim Vendors. So mm. it, it, you know, it, and it's actually interesting to compare the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's most certainly a comeback in terms of quality. The problem is the movie never was theatrically released here in America, mm. even though it was, I mean, it was actually produced in Italy, but it was springboarded by Malkovich. It was actually, I believe, the second of his Mr. Mud productions after mm. Ghost World. So it's most certainly a comeback for Cavani as an artistic success, uh, but it was just unfortunate that it never sort of yeah, broke out. Yeah, it didn't out. get the release that it, that it needed to. But Ripley's Game... Definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. And on the male spectrum, uh, bring up a filmmaker you just mentioned a few moments ago, John Carpenter, ah. within the mouth of madness. Ah, love yes, it, love it, love it. the much, Sam Neill. much underrated 1994 uh-huh. Lovecraftian horror film, which it almost is like a remake of The Big Sleep at mm. times. <laughs> yes, it is a private eye film with Sam Neill as an insurance investigator. That veers into horror, uh, you know, probably some of the best deployment of Lovecraftian techniques on film. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, you know, Carpenter's always been a great filmmaker. I mean, I love Prince of Darkness and They mm-hmm. Live, but mm-hmm. you know, then you get to Memoirs of an Invisible Man. <laughs> I just recently <laughs> watched that, and not a, uh, not not the best. <laughs> no, and then Body Bags, I don't think was ever particularly successful, you know even though he was I just quite a star in enjoyed that. that. I finally saw it recently mm-hmm. and really quite enjoyed Body Bags. His segment, The Gas Station, is fun, yeah. um, but. It doesn't have the carpenter sort of like it doesn't. It feels very much like it feels slight. It feels slight. It is very minor. Yeah. Uh, And I, I can't. Well, Village of the Damned was technically after, but nonetheless, in the mouth of madness. uh, That's a great. It's a great comeback. It is very underrated. People really again need to go back and revisit Mm -hmm. that movie. It's a great showcase for how you know why and reminds why Sam Neill is a much underrated actor. Oh yeah, Possession baby. I fucking love Zulaski's Possession. Possession. Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. Um 
But yeah, so that's mine, John Carpenter in the Mouth of Madness. You could not have picked a better name to end this episode on. Oh, yeah. Carpenter mm-hmm. is one of our absolute faves on this show. We've done a ton of We've done movies. have we done multiple episodes on Carpenter because we did They Live, we did. which we is did great because that we was like your thing. debut to we they, live. they Live. We did Halloween. Halloween. We've done a lot of major Carpenter. Yeah. I think we previously talked about how he must be our favorite movie movie maker because we've just talked about him so much. I'm surprised much. you guys best. haven't done Big Trouble in Little China yet though. Oh, we'll get there. I would I like think. to, yeah. I would yeah. Definitely like to. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll uh, get there. We don't want to burn them all out. We got to. We got to build an audience. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, real quick, I, I, I'm sure it's obvious to our audience. I mean, there would be a million honorable mentions that I think most of us avoided because uh, they're the obvious answers, like Mickey Rourke, John Travolta, mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr., uh, even Burt Reynolds with uh, uh, Boogie, uh, Nights. Boogie Nights. You know, there are, there are some obvious Which choices. Which he later was ashamed to do, this. apparently. Hey, yeah. Mm. It's a shame. It's my favorite movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just wanted to point out for the audience mm. that we're aware of those things. I yeah. had like a there was because it's not really a hiatus. I cut Charlie Kaufman out because he did Synecdoche mm, yes. and then waited seven years to do Anomalisa in yeah. terms of directing. But that was a cheap. But I want to say I'm calling for a comeback of two big names, and they are the previously mentioned Fred Decker uh, and Larry Cohen. Mm, uh, I want them. I need them. Yeah. Bring them back. I unfortunately don't have any honorable mentions because a lot of my stuff was done on the fly. Well, that's fine. You did fantastic. Without dragging it on too mu- too long, uh, do we want to maybe end on some recommendations of stuff we've seen recently? Well, that's Absolutely. how we love to end cool. the show. Absolutely. Nocturnal Animals. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That is out in the theater now. Tom I went Ford. in kind of expecting like, oh, it's going to be a middling thriller. Yeah. It's, it's of the season. Yeah. And it is a lock on my end of your list. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I went out and bought the book that it's based on. Can't wait to crack it. Yeah. So uh, highly recommend. Michael Shannon comes from another planet where they have a it's laboratory Krypton, I believe. where they build entertainers yeah. and out of the actor wing uh, he he emerged and Justin Timberlake's from that planet uh-huh. there's just yeah it Michael Shannon crushed it oh, yeah. love it he's uh, very good in that movie very very good mm-hmm. I, I you saw Nocturnal Animals I did see it did you enjoy it I was not a fan of it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I was uh, very, very into it. Yeah. But highly recommend. I mean, I'm very interested in that movie. I'm going to try and catch it before the end of the year, I think. Uh, my big one is Cretia, uh, which mm. is, uh, I, t- I think, technically has a 2015 release date on it, but that's just from a small festival run. It just finally became available to uh, major audiences this year. Uh, and I watched it for uh, the Farsighted, uh, one of the blogs I write for, farsightedblog.com. Check us out. Uh, uh, for Thanksgiving, because it is a Thanksgiving movie, which is actually kind of a rare thing, ultimately. They're, they can't, they don't come to mind as easily as Christmas movies or Halloween movies. or Thanksgiving. That's, That's it. literally <laughs> the only one I can think of. Uh, but um, it is a... I was so taken with this movie. It's a first-time filmmaker. Uh, he had made a short called Cretia that this was an expansion of. Uh, it mostly stars his family. Uh, it's semi-autobiographical. Um, the performances he captures are really great and very natural. Uh, and he he tells a story that is, on one hand, very depressing and very sad uh, and can be hard to watch, but he tells it with so much sympathy, like actual sympathy, not just empathy, but real sympathy as well for all of these characters, and especially Cretia, who is a really, really complex, complicated character. For it to be as autobiographical, if it's in any way autobiographical, which in doing some research afterwards, it is, the amount of sympathy he shows these characters, especially Cretia, is more heartbreaking than Cretia's story itself. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that this story could be told with as much sympathy for Cretia, 
by someone that may have suffered because of Cretia is heartbreaking so and so powerful. So unden to me, like so undeniably powerful in the amount of love that he shows that character. It's I really love this movie, and it has some real bravado filmmaking for a first-time filmmaker too. You want to talk about show don't tell filmmaking? There is an unbroken seven-minute shot that is the opening shot of the movie. You learn everything you need to know about Cretia in those seven minutes, and no one utters a word. I'm probably gonna watch that. I really gotta catch up with this. Really, really good. I I really was really taken with it. I highly recommend it. Uh, a very, I thought it was a very special film. It, 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 there's a good chance it'll make it on my list by the end of the year. Nice, yeah. excellent. Nice. What do you got for us? Well, I admittedly have a couple, but uh, Please, I'll, try to, I'll try to jet through them so do we don't prolong this too much. Uh, <laughs> so first a new release, and then I want to plug some stuff uh, for Viva. Actually, to be honest, oh, that, I love that it. We have Please that do. Yeah, it's tough to get a hold of. Yeah. Uh, well, the first one, the new release. Uh, even though I haven't seen too many great films this year, uh, and this one's not great, but I did enjoy Pete's Dragon, which I watched. Please Gods of Egypt. Oh, Pete's Dragon. Uh, no, I, I still need to catch up with Close. Gods of Egypt, man. It, it is on the queue. Don't worry. Please do. I caught up with Pete's Dragon, which I. Uh, I think maybe some people may have overacted a bit, but I surprisingly enjoyed it. It's a fun, Heard great things. It's a fun, you know, really bizarre sort of like studio film. I yeah. mean, it, it's got a lot of the Disney stuff that you expect, but it's a very weird marriage of uh, Spielbergian um, uh-huh. stuff. A lot of the, particularly a lot of the last half, uh, is structurally. Uh, Similar to E.T. Oh, okay. Uh, but the first 40 minutes, weirdly enough, almost feels like a John Sayles movie. Really? Like, there's a lot of regional cool. specificity yeah. involving the the mill and uh, the... Because there's a lot of stuff with Pete and the Dragon, but there's a whole tangent in the movie with uh, the town. It's a logging town mm. um, in the Pacific Northwest. And you just see them going about their way, sort of yeah. chopping down trees and stuff yeah. like that and sending them to the mill. Uh, but it's fun. It's uh, it's light. Uh, but every you know, it's it's a good time is what I surprised. Huh. So Pete's Dragon, surprisingly fun. And I do have three uh, that I must confess I do not have a Netflix account, nor do I <laughs> do much streaming. Yeah. I am admittedly a physical media guy uh-huh. through and through. So you'll probably if you want to get these. Without torrenting, yeah, you probably would need to come and check us out at Viva Video. We're in Ardmore, PA, 16 West Lancaster, and these are three recommendations that I always One of like to give. One the great to remaining video stores, if I if I may say. Thank uh, you very it's much. Very worth checking out Viva, mm-hmm. especially if you are uh, of uh, Dan's ilk here, where you are just obsessed with your physical media. Oh, thank uh, you, man. No, I mean now we're we're open every single day of the year. 11 to 10, Friday through Sundays, Monday through Thursdays, uh, 1 to 9. 15,000 plus titles. It's three for the price of two every day and two for one on Sundays. We are so happy to plug and support, uh, you know, a video store. I don't know. That's Mm -hmm. one of the things that I most cherish for my youth is the video store. Thank you. Well, three uh, three movies I will mention. First and foremost, Streetwise, um, which is a documentary from 1985 about homeless children in Seattle. Whoa. It is uh, is the kind of movie that could easily fall into the sort of like sort of uh, like quasi victim narrative advocacy uh, piece okay. about how can we solve this problem but it's just this sort of like naturalistic uh human documentary it is only available on VHS um we do have uh, a DVD R that you could rent <laughs> um but uh and I may I will confess I made it not not for the reasons of illegal copying or anything yeah. but because 
I want people to see this movie. Right, and if they don't have VHS mm. access, that's a mm-hmm. way for them to see it. But um, streetwise, it is incredible. It's 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 pretty harrowing because yeah. when you watch it, I mean, like a lot, some of the kids actually died while they were making the movie. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you kind of they kind of deal they have to deal with that. But it's got a great sort of cinema verite quality. Yeah. Um, but definitely that. Uh, the second one is uh, definitely on the weirder end of the spectrum. Uh, one of my favorite You're in the right DVD, place. One of my favorite DVD labels in the world is Mondo Macabro uh-huh. and their mm-hmm. release of Lady Terminator. Oh, I have is, always man. wanted to see yeah. that. Oh man, I, I have always wanted to see that. Lady Terminator. Is, it, I've seen this movie for like several times. I caught uh, caught up with it. I think I'd I had seen it before uh, the Exhumed Horathon. Um, it's it's a blast. If you ever want to see an Indonesian Terminator ripoff that impl- uh, employs folk Indonesian folklore into it, then look no further. Uh, has also uh, one of my favorite lines in it, which is, are you going to give this guy a beer or is he just going to drink milk? <laughs> <laughs> and the last I will uh, also plug uh, is VH- it's a VHS only film. Um, this one has kind of blown up over the years uh, and it has hit kind of hit big when the exhumed guy showed the horathon this past year but i'm gonna plug it nonetheless it is michael winter's scream for help yo i heard oh, everybody yeah. talking about that coming out of the exhumed horror th- uh fest this year i'd heard about this movie first uh actually through uh miguel my compadre at uh, viva video um he uh he'd heard about this through Rupert Publican speaks which is a great blog online oh, for cool. sort of underrated movies yeah. uh this apparently was f- kind of a resurgence of interest of this started at Scarecrow Video bled its way to the internet. I caught up with it. It is easily the best Michael Winter film I've seen. Yeah, I mean Michael Winter, not a man who is a. Uh, uh, how can I put this? He is not unencumbered by good taste. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, Death Wish. He made Sentinel. Yeah. This is most certainly his best and craziest. Is this the one with Ernest Borgnine? No, uh, I'm not sure of the movie. Mm, I, I, of, one of my friends went to our fest and was raving about a couple things, and one of them had Ernest Borgnine in it. But uh, this might have been a, like a year or two ago. But either way, maybe it, might, it may have been help, Sunday in the country. Um, Sunday in the country. Yeah. That's the Sunday one. In yep. the <laughs> but um, but yeah, scream for help. I don't even want to give anything away I, too much away. It is the sleaziest Nancy Drew mystery you'll ever see. <laughs> it is a movie that makes has a recurring joke of a woman falling down the steps. It is, <laughs> it is sold. <laughs> it is you know, brilliantly described by my friend Susan as a TV movie of the week with doggy sex, ridiculous graphic violence, and all manner of deplorables in it. So those are my recommendations. I love it. That's thank a great you. list. Yeah. That is a great list. We cannot thank you enough for coming out. <laughs> Seriously, man. You, man. Donating your knowledge and voice to yeah. the show. Well, thank you. We'll, we'll definitely have you back have you again, again, please. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and we'll let you last. pick a movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, in fact, I think you and I have discussed previously. We would like to talk. Uh, uh, what did we talk about? Blowout. Yeah, blowout. yeah, yeah. Blowout. Mm-hmm. Yep. Blowout. Blowout's uh, a good one. I need to revisit that. Uh, yeah. Was Sorcerer that's great one of the too. other ones you actually talked about too? Right. Uh, to the other. Yeah, it was Sorcerer, Blowout, and uh, Eyes Wide Shut. 
Oh yeah, and I think uh, I think Andy three. wants to yeah. come and do yeah. some Eyes Wide Show Andy with wants us. To do some yeah. eyes wide He'll be show, on our so. year-end list episode. Yes. Yeah. Andy's so. a great guy. Yeah, yeah. he's mm-hmm. he's. We're gonna have a good time with him at the end of the year for our best of. So, mm-hmm. uh, why don't you continue plugging Viva Video for sure? Uh, anywhere else people can find you online or other places you'd like them to seek you out? Oh yeah, well uh, you can find me in person at Viva Video usually on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. I'm usually there. Uh, even if I'm not working a shift, you'll usually find me there between noon and four or five. Okay, just do and stuff around because that's what I do. Yep. Uh, you can find me online, uh, Facebook, Dan Santelli, S-A-N-T-E-L-L-I. At the moment, my avatar is Morris the Cat, so <laughs> I should be able to, you should be able to figure out who I am easily there. Yep. Uh, I'm not great at Twitter, but I do have a have an arm handle. It's at Cineast, uh, S-I-N-Y-E-A-S-T-E. Uh, but uh, you can definitely find me on Letterboxd. The arm handle there is Kenpo Courage, K-E-N-P-O-C-O-U-R-A-G-E. I'm a black belt in Kenpo Karate. I am a black belt in Kenpo Karate as well. That's nice. where it came from. We it's, might have sparred in the past. Where did you go? Where did you I went go? to Americic Karate Studios in Marlton, New Jersey, but I went to all the tournaments. Okay, if you were at like one, the old tournaments at the Holiday Inn over in KOP, you yep. might have you guys sparred before. Totally oh, sparred, sparred as children. I yes. love this. Yeah, re- representing knackered karate system. Yep, here. that yep. sounds very familiar. Oh, man, <laughs> um, that's funny. But yeah, you can find me on Letterboxd. Uh, my initials are DS. I, uh, I'm. Usually post a well. I usually put up uh, I put up everything I watch on there. I try to write uh, if I can, if I have the time, but sometimes it's just can't quite hang it. But Dan's yeah. one of my favorite writers on Letterboxd. You guys should definitely give him a follow. Thank you. Yeah. So that's where you can find me. Yeah. Awesome. Right uh, why don't we plug ourselves up? Yep. There? Well, I'm also on Letterboxd at Dan Scully. Um, I review everything I write. Usually just blurbs. Um, you can check out Cynadelphia.com. I review for them. Do some blogging there. I'm on Twitter, at Dan Scully, Facebook, all that jazz. Where If it exists, I, I managed to get my name on it, <laughs> except for DanScully.com. And if you're listening, buddy, I'm fucking coming for you. <laughs> I am coming for you. Uh, Although he's like he's like a Broadway like tech programmer and all that. It's like, I can't even touch yeah, that fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Just represent the name well, my friend. What a, Carry that torch. What a sad state of affairs that you have to like submit defeat to a guy that just like programs lights at Broadway. Well, like, but I mean, he's like done some good I, I, shit. Yeah. What I'm hoping is either he remits yeah. or he gets so famous that he has to buy all these other domains. From me. <laughs> yeah. Either way is a win. Yeah. But at Dan Scully on everything. So yeah, follow my Twitter, follow my letterbox, and uh, check out Cinadelphia.com. You can find me on Twitter at Filmadelphia. That's with an F. I'm also on Letterboxd at Filmadelphia with an F. Uh, and uh, I'm on uh, FarsightedBlog.com. That's where I do most of my uh, my blogging these days. Uh, and you can find the show all over the place where. Uh, at I like two movie that's the numeric two uh, facebook.com slash I like two movie tumblr I like two movie uh, and email us I like two movie at gmail.com we want to hear from you we want to hear suggestions you have for uh, future movies that we should talk about uh, questions you have things you'd like to yell at us about whatever please interact with us and uh, <laughs> Listen, hey, if we fuck anything up like you got to call us out yeah on please because <laughs> we're too do dumb it. to know like if nobody tells us we won't Research ever sucks. know you yeah. do it yeah uh, and uh, hey, uh, it's a big help to us if you rate and subscribe on iTunes. It's uh, the best thing you could do for the show if uh, if you have it 
in your heart. And make sure you guys follow because we do have some things coming up. Oh, um, yes. In the works, we are working on a, a screening event. I'm not going to drop any details yet. Not quite yet, but... But uh, we got up. our hands on some yeah. cool stuff for yeah. it. So just follow along because that's going to be one of many different things that we're going to be doing. In we got some, some cool uh, stuff in the works. Some fundraising for uh, for the world. So yeah. it's going to be a, it's going to be an exciting year in 2017. I think so. So follow now. Yeah. Uh, let's close this up the way we do every episode. Dan, I think you probably know how to follow along with this. If not, you'll pick it up as we go along. My name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. And my name is Dan Santelli, and I certainly like to movie movie. Oh, oh. change it up. <laughs> and we all know that you like to movie movie because we, we like, like to movie. movie.